Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, March the 15th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. We hope our chummy buddy Cato is doing well in his future endeavor. I think he's in, what, Kansas, if yeah. I'm not mistaken? Yeah, training somewhere, somewhere out there. Training up a proverbial storm <laughs> is what we're hearing. <laughs> uh, we did communicate with him yesterday a bit about the Atlanta Braves. Right. Um, you're sad today, I would imagine. Uh, I don't know if I can even talk about this. It's, oh, what a, I don't even know what to say. So you so you got a 27-year-old and a 32-year-old. The 27-year-old is about as good as the 32-year-old, and he's less expensive. Are you a Freddie Freeman fan or a Braves fan? Yes and yes. No, you can't but, be but, yes and but, yes. But when you just, you know, you analyze it like that, and I knew the position you would take on this. Because I'm a business You're going to say, oh, good business decision. But there's intangibles there. Such as? Such as Freddie Freeman, the value of having a player like Freddie Freeman be a brave for life. Okay. I think that is good for the team. It is good for the fans. It's good for your emotions. Absolutely. You know what you don't do as a business? I hear you. You don't allow emotions to dictate the terms and conditions which you make your decisions. Let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Player A, player B. Mm -hmm. Player A is 27. Player B is 32. Right. Player A's power numbers are about the same as player B's power numbers. Player A comes at a a little bit of a discount because he's a younger player. Um, You run the business called the Atlanta Braves. What's the better business decision? Take the big smile out of the equation. Take the 12-year run out of the equation. What's a better – are the Atlanta Braves a business or not? They are. Okay. Of course. Um, what's the better business decision? It's easy. I mean, Freddie Is will it? be just fine. Of course he will. Don't, don't feel sorry no, for Freddie. No, I don't Freddy. feel sorry for I mean, him. He'll probably end up as an L.A. Dodger. Guess who has more money than the Braves? Guess who has more money than anybody in baseball except the Yankees? That would be the Los Angeles Dodgers. Sure. And they're in hot pursuit, as Jack uh, Buford T. Justice says, <laughs> of Freddie Freeman. So Freddie will do just fine, uh, rest assured, with or without the Atlanta Braves. Mm-hmm. And he got a lot out of him. I mean, the guy had a 12-year career, won a world championship, uh, was one of the, I don't know, preeminent hitters in all of baseball. But you got a chance to free up some capital to use on some younger players. You got a guy five years younger that is about the same sort of player, probably not as good a hitter for average but a little better power hitter. I think Freeman had, a, what, 31 home runs. This kid had 39 home runs. Uh, Freddie hit 300. This guy hit 271 or 272 or, or 273, uh, somewhere there about. The Braves made a good business decision, as did our Gamecocks make a good business decision. Oh, here we by, go. Um, parting ways or, or, I don't know, getting rid of or firing. Uh, can we say that now? Yeah. Uh, firing head basketball coach. I think coach that's Frank what Martin. happened, so you might as well say it. Um, you know, someone texted me last night about Frank and said, you know, Frank's a good man. A little bit like Freddie Freeman. Frank's a good man. There's nostalgia uh, with Frank because of our run to the Final Four. Yep. Uh, Give me another um, reason to keep Frank. Crickets. There there was none. Um, Where should – I mean, the Atlanta Braves should win a world championship once what? Every 15 years? I mean, is that reasonable? I mean, the Braves are a – they're not a small market team. They're not the Dodgers nor the Yankees nor the Mets nor the Cubs. Uh, there's some of these teams in the major, major markets that have advantages with luxury tax. Well, anyway, 
the luxury taxes are to create a more level playing field because of some of these teams in what we call the major, I mean, Atlanta's a major market, but it's not New York. I mean, it's not Los Angeles. It's not Chicago. Getting pretty close to Chicago, I would imagine. Um, but, But when you look at the Braves, and you look at their, I don't know, Rev, um, the, the one, one of the best runs in the history of baseball ended with one world championship, and the Braves pick up a few spare parts at the, uh, at the midseason point, the all-star break, and end up winning as many world championships as the Braves did with the great team they had. But anyway, someone asked me yesterday, what should the expectation be for Gamecock basketball? It should be better than making the tournament one in 10 years. I mean, it's got to be better than that. You should be a shoe-in about three years. You should be on the bubble about three or four years, and you should be out about three years. I mean, I think that's a reasonable other 10 years. You got a 10-year run here for Gamecock basketball. That's how long Frank's been there. You, you got to make the tournament easily three of those 10 years. You got to be on the bubble. Maybe you make it, maybe you don't, three or four of those years. And then three years, you just, you know, you have a bad year. You graduate a bunch of players, a player leaves, whatever happens. Someone gets hurt, and you don't make it. So three in, three out and about four of which you are in the, on the bubble. Um, they've only been on the bubble about twice and made it one time. Here's an interesting statistic, Rev. The year they made the run to the Final Four, they were kind of a bubble team. I mean, they were a seven seed, just happened to get hot at the right time. I mean, it, you know, I like Frank. I think Frank's done a good job as an ambassador to USC, um, but it was time. I mean, it was clearly time uh, to move on, and there's some young coaches out there uh, one in particular that I like, but nobody's asking me who I like. There's a Medved uh, that coached at Furman. I've read is, his name. Is now at Colorado State. He's about 47 or 8 years old. That's the guy that I'd make um, a run at. Um, Greg Marshall, you know, the guy. Marshall's a little bit, um, shall I say, seedy. I mean, he's had some um, some situations in his coaching life that make the university of which employs him a little less than comfortable. But the Cats coached 22 years in college basketball. You know how many times he's not made the postseason? Three. That's pretty well, phenomenal. Yeah. He's made like um three or four NITs and 17 or 18 NCAA tournaments. Um, he's originally, he's a, um, a South Carolina native, but once again, he's had some issues and they may not be willing to roll the dice and take a chance with a guy who's had some issues. Um, but it might be a good business decision. Well, I mean, it, uh, yeah. I mean, if he makes the playoff, makes the tournament. Mr. You know, business. Well, I mean, it's got to be a business. I didn't decide for it to become a business. Um, the people who run sports franchises all over the country decided for it to become. When you send me a notice in the mail saying that I owe you 10 grand for my tickets, I mean, that becomes a business proposition. That ain't buying a ticket to the <laughs> you're, carnival you're right any about longer. That. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Hey, would you like to finance your season tickets? Yeah, that's the only way I can pay for them is to finance my season tickets. So the determination to make it a business was not the consumers. I mean, it was the guys who run Major League Baseball, who run the NBA, who run uh, the NFL, and um, and college athletics as well. So a couple of um, interesting points of sports. But the biggest story on the national scene would have been Tom Brady. Well, yeah. I mean, Tom Brady deciding. Why not uh, try to steal the thunder from Selection Sunday and, and spring training weekend? Uh I mean, you All of a sudden, Brady, the NFL is top of the news again. I mean, imagine that. Yeah. It doesn't take much to put the NFL on top of the uh, sports page. But here's Brady's deal. I mean, I'm sure I'm right about this. Brady cannot live with the thought of not competing 
for something. He just can't. I think he's one of these um, competition addicts. I mean, there are people addicted to alcohol. There are people addicted to drugs. There are people addicted to, to money. There are people addicted to uh, just a lot of different things in life. Tom Brady cannot think about a life that does not include being uber competitive and getting paid to do it. You know, and maybe he questioned whether he could, I mean, I'm sure he could make himself get up in the morning. He has for the last 20 years or 25 years of his life. Uh, I don't know how much air was in that football, but I don't know how many um, omega, uh, how much omega and how many fat grams were in that salmon, that 2.753 ounces of salmon I eat every day at 11.57 and 42 seconds. But I don't have any idea how much air was in that football. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to delve into something t- today. And I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to uh, add a little bit to the uh, the Atlanta Braves Freddie Freeman story, and this is just something. Uh, it was a Twitter thread that I read. Rev's and, a big Braves fan, guys. I mean, I'm oh, a Braves yeah. fan, but Rev is a a, a brave enthusiast yeah. to the nth degree. So okay. looking forward to the season. So hoping they were going to uh, to sign Freddie, but they reported and these somebody put a Twitter thread out there, and they were talking about something they heard, I guess, on Atlanta Sports Radio, talking about it. And they said basically that the the offers were out there. This was night before last. They had Freddie's you know offer, and nobody knows what the Atlanta Braves offered Freddie at this point. But they had Freddie's offer out there, and then they had this blockbuster trade on the table. And they told Freddie, "Hey, man, we have got to have an answer because obviously this trade's only going to proposal's only going to hold so long for Olson." And he didn't answer. And they had to pull the trigger. And I saw an interview with uh, the general manager of the Braves, uh, Anthropolis, yesterday, and he was talking about it. And obviously, there wasn't a lot he could talk about, but he got emotional when, right. when they when they asked, "Oh, yeah. it's fake." Yeah. What are you talking him, about? They told him that like he was real sad. Oh. <laughs> They're, Apparently they're, there is crying in baseball, though. They're a little bit excited about a 27-year-old for a lesser price than a 32-year-old who will go off to Los Angeles, get paid a lot of money, and probably uh, potentially play the Braves in a, in a playoff game somewhere down the road. We know they'll play in the regular me. season. Uh, I just I think they made the right move. Now, now the one thing they did do, because I look at more as a business than you do, they put a lot of burden on um, Acuna. I mean, the kid that got hurt yeah. last year, I mean, they, he, they believe he's the, the solid bat in the middle of the lineup. So they put a lot of pressure on And Acuna. they gave away a lot. I mean, they, they sent Pache. They sent, I think. A, a, See, I don't know who that is. I don't have any idea. I mean, I, I read last night he's one of the up-and-comer yeah. uh, shortstops, great defensive baseball player, and blah, blah, blah. I, I actually went to a podcast with my buddy oh, Alec now Walt. It's, now it's blah, blah, blah. Remember Alec Walt? Oh, sure. The, the, you know, I, saw, I yeah, saw it. I, he had a podcast. I he, saw it yesterday. He, he just raked the braze over the coal he for did. not – but, I mean, he was kind of your point. I mean, this guy is a face of the franchise. Um, he needs to retire as a Brave like Chipper Jones retired as a Brave. I'll ask you this. How did it work out after Chipper left? I mean, they wandered yeah. around the forest of all. Um, that was, those were the rebuilding years, you know, weren't I mean, they? There, there you go. Yeah. And I think this guy's not going to be caught um, flat-footed like that previous, um, I don't know, let's say administration. We talk so much politics but, here. But Chipper, back in the day, he, to his credit, took less money and a lower contract in his later years and really worked as a developer, right? But he should have taken less money because he was not as good a player well, as he was. And he did. And, and that's what the Braves are doing. Freeman wanted a six-year deal. I mean, that's what I read. And I think that might have been at sportsillustrated.com. Um, Freeman wanted a six-year deal. The Braves, I mean, yeah, the Braves offered a three and maybe even a four-year deal. So if he's 32 now, you're going to pay the guy until he's 38? As if he's one of the elite first basemen in all of baseball. How many 38-year-old first basemen are elite? I think the Braves made a very smart decision, and I think Freeman, I mean, Freeman will get his money. 
I mean, I don't know if anybody will give him a six-year deal, but but Freddie will get his money. Um, it's just whether he gets 130 or 180. You know, I just I, the average sports fans go with like, really? So he wouldn't take 130 for four years because he wanted 180 for six years. It's still about the same annual salary. Freddie just wanted 60 more million for the years he's 37 or 35 and 30. Uh, no, it'd be 37 and 38 years old, and that makes no sense to me. I mean, that just makes no sense at all to me. Um, it's a business. He provides a service. You know what his service is? Is to be a really good baseball player. You know what people aren't when they're 38 years old? They're normally not really good baseball players at the age of 38. And I think that's the, you know, that that's the, um, I don't know, the way the Braves approach this. Hey, I made a pledge to you last week that I was going to try and understand uh, the Federal Reserve, the nuances, the intricacies, the ins and outs, um, the things we don't know. Um, we like to pride ourselves on Wake Up Carolina, not in much, but at times we like to go down the road of telling you something you probably don't know. The more I've read, the more confused I am. <laughs> I mean, it, it is the most confusing. I mean, I, I found out things yesterday. I actually spent about two you hours. talk about Fed and all that fun yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, the Federal Reserve. I mean, the Board of Governors. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's got so many different elements within. Um, See, all I read is the, is the high view. Like I read yesterday something about they're trying to organize the soft landing at this point. And, and that, that sounds a little scary to me. Yeah, it, it'll be a it'll be a hard soft landing, but it, you know they're trying to do that. <laughs> the reason it's timely is Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia has be, kind of become our friend again. Um, he will not support Sarah Bloom Raskin. Who is Sarah Bloom Raskin? She is President Biden's nominee for the Federal Reserve's Vice Chairman of Supervision. It's a pretty important position, um, and. Uh, Manchin released a statement yesterday saying her previous public statements have failed to satisfactorily address my concerns about the critical importance of financing all of the above energy policies. Energy policies. A a a vice chairman of supervision at the Federal Reserve, which control our monetary policy, has an opinion. And let it be known on energy policy. Now, the New York Times has already complained I mean, I would say they've issued a statement on behalf of the Democrat Party. They don't call it that. They call it writing an article. When they write an article, they're basically issuing a statement on behalf of the Democrat Party. That's but, for sure. But, but they said yesterday that the Republicans on the banking committee could be blamed. Well, I mean, Manchin is the holdup. Manchin's the one that is declining to support. Um, the Times went on to say that um, the Republicans have so far stonewalled her nomination and committee raising concerns about her position on climate regulation and her work in the private sector. Now, now Manchin said, and I quote, that his problem with Ms. Raskin is she has a position on climate regulation. I mean, go talk to Al Gore or John Kerry. Uh, you know, ask Biden to hire you a climate czar or an assistant to the climate czar. Um, but, but the problem with Sarah Bloom Raskin is not the nature of her position on climate change. It's that she has a position on climate change. And let it be known during some of the uh, some of the interviewing and some of the um, appearances she made before the banking committee, uh, the Federal Reserve Board is not an institution where, you know, politics or politicizing climate change um, is a part of its critical decision. And Manchin says the time has come for the Federal Reserve Board to return to its defining principles and dual mandate of controlling inflation. Uh, how you doing with that? 
uh, by ensuring stable prices. How you doing with that? Uh, maximum employment. How you doing with that? Um, I will not support any future nominee that does not respect these crucial and critical priorities. That's Democrat Joe Manchin, once again, not complaining of her position on climate regulation, the fact that she believes it's her job to publicly pronounce her position when she is a member of the, um, of the Federal Reserve. I'll ask you this. We'll take a break. How many employees do you think the Federal Reserve have? I mean, I spent two hours. <laughs> We're probably about ready to be shocked. Well, I mean, it, it, we, we've actually got a report here where someone did a deep dive in the Federal, uh, in the federal Reserve's employees and how many are voting Democrat. I mean, they went through some of the voter registration information. It's mind-boggling. As nervous as I've always been about the Fed and the lack of sound monetary policy, I'm more concerned today. The more I know, the more I con- the more concerned I become. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I will say this as we kind of ease into Tuesday morning show. Um, a lot of us are concerned about China. A lot of us are concerned about Russia. A lot of us are concerned for the Ukrainians. If you look at the, I don't know, the peace and prosperity of America moving forward, you know what the biggest danger is, Rev? Mm. The Fed. I mean, I, I'm convinced of that. I mean, it, it is completely and totally out of control. It is disconnected from reality. It's easy to find and identify a geopolitical adversary. I mean, China is our geopolitical foe. Russia is our geopolitical foe in the traditional sense. Um, what do we say about, you know, superpowers? They're normally not attacked from outside that they become corrupted within, whether it's moral or, or ethics or whatever, uh, morality, uh, the Roman Empire comes to mind. Um, yeah, I mean, it, when you look at the biggest threat to American prosperity and American, let me say, let's sound like John McCain here, American exceptionalism, it's the Federal Reserve. And the damage it has done and will potentially do if we don't begin to clearly understand the effects or impacts of uh, what they're doing, they're printing money. I mean, they're printing money to buy government debt. They're printing money to buy corporate debt. Um, and, and I wrote something now this morning. I mean, my, you know, being in business all of my life, if the Fed borrows money today that goes to uh, fund a current expense or obligation, that money's gone. I mean, if Rev owes a million dollars and he's got a print press in his basement and he prints a million dollars off and he goes and buys a farm, that's an asset that may be worth more than that down the road, and his family will enjoy the benefit after he's gone. Some great-grandkid one day you know, may develop the land, and out of that comes $100 million. I don't know, but, but what we're doing today is we're basically borrowing money to meet current expenses and obligations, and that money's gone, never to be spent again. And, and it's not making its way into the economy. It's making its way. Uh, it's got kind of a short track. Tony and I were talking about that. And I don't have clarity of understanding yet on some of the mortgage-backed securities and corporate debt and bonds and, and, and T-bills, but that's where the majority of this debt comes from. It's interesting. The one thing I've learned is when you really break our government's debt down into two tranches, two, two, let's say two silos, you got public and private. Japan owns more of our debt than any other sovereign nation in the world. Japan owns about uh, $1.5 trillion in government debt, U.S. government debt. Um, but, but I'd always, for some reason, and, and this is my fault for not clearly understanding, when I read that the, the public sector had, 
you know, this much debt or the private sector had that much debt. Um, the government is called private, I mean, uh, public sector. You see where I'm headed, Rev? In, in other words, the Federal Reserve would be categorized not as the government. I mean, it's an entity created out of the government. It's founded by Congress, created by Congress, but Congress has very little oversight. I mean, it points some of the directors and supervisors and whatnot, but it's not an agency of the federal government. It's supposed to be independent of government. So when you look at the government debt and you say intra-government debt, I'd always assumed wrong, but I'd always, I'd always assumed that intra-government debt included the Federal Reserve. No, the, the, the public debt, in other words, the, the Federal Reserve debt is lumped in with Japan and China and England and Germany and, and some of these other, because it's not a government entity. It's not a government enterprise. So you got about $6.5 trillion of intra-government debt. you got about $23 trillion of external debt outside of the, the government. And the Fed is outside of the government. Therefore, it's kind of like, um, now, and once again, Japan can't print its money. Well, I don't know if they can or not. They can't print U.S. dollars. There you go. They can't print the, um, the global preferred currency. We can. But the point I'm trying to make is we are printing money to meet existing obligations. That money's gone. I mean, if Rev went, once again, and this is the illustration I use, if Rev had a printing press and he counterfeited money and he went down and he counterfeited money to meet the obligations he's already um, acquired, that money's gone. But if Rev prints a million dollars, goes out to make an investment, maybe it's a good investment. Uh, maybe he gets a 10% return on that investment. We're not doing that. I mean, the money we're printing is to meet current and existing obligations. And, it, I mean, we're printing it like the, the Fed's balance sheet is about $9 trillion. It never went over $1 trillion until the world blew up in 2008, and it rescued Wall Street. I mean, that's, that's what it did. It didn't rescue Joe Blow. I mean, Joe Blow, who bought a house he couldn't afford, he still got kicked out of the house. I mean, he couldn't make the mortgage payment. It rescued Wall Street. It made Goldman Sachs whole. It made AIG to some degree whole. Uh, it, it, it uh, you know, it funded some of these mergers and, and acquisitions and takeovers. It has been Wall Street's best friend. In fact, I'll argue that the one entity or enterprise or apparatus that is contributing more to income inequality than any in the world is the Federal Reserve. I think it is the the generator of more income inequality, the impetus of more income inequality than any other we can imagine. Let's go to the phone. Here is Dale in Florence. Morning, Dale. Morning, guys. And, and Ken, maybe you can explain a little more. You've talked in the past about how they, through printing money, uh, artificially manipulated the uh, um, – the inflation numbers. You've been saying that for a few years now. Is, is that correct? I don't want to put words in your mouth. That, that is absolutely. They've, ex uh, they, they've, they've excluded food and fuel as in the measurements of inflation. And what do we buy most of? Food and fuel. I mean, how many washing machines do you buy? How many cars do you buy? How much food and fuel do you buy? They've excluded that as the basket of inflation um, to, to basically manipulate or distort what the real rate of inflation is. So... Which devalues the dollar, Dale. I mean, inflation not just uh, d inflation devalues the amount of income you have, the amount of money you make, uh, the value of the dollars you have in your pocket. Well aware, um, <laughs> living that every day now. Um, I, I guess what I'm getting at is, is 
the, the actual inflation numbers, when they've been saying they're, they're next to nothing all these years, have actually been up about, what, 10 12%. And, and, and with what we're going through now, we got to be pushing real number inflation about 20% or so. I don't know. I don't know how you come back from that. I just don't. You guys have as good a day as you can. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate that. I would argue that the the historic. I mean, we're we're in, a, in an era right now of crazy inflation, and there are a lot of I mean, the Fed's contributed to that. You know, it printed all the money, it bought all the bonds, it distorted the market, um, it added more liquidity. I mean, we've had a lot of conversations on this show about the amount of liquidity injected into the economy. Um, but but. The reason that I've argued they distort inflation, there's a couple of reasons that I think the government is very self-serving and the Fed controls some of this. Not all of it, but some of this. Um, Social Security raises are indexed to inflation. So if you can keep inflation down, you don't have to give people Social Security increases because, once again, it's predicated on what the rate of inflation is. The other is, I mean, we're in such debt I mean, if you raise interest payments, if you raise interest rates a half percent, I mean, I don't know that we can meet our obligations. In other words, when you owe $30 trillion to somebody or something in this case called the Federal Reserve, and you've got to service that debt and interest rates, I mean, it's a little bit different even by car. It's not a big deal. I mean, most of us understand this. Let's live in our world for a second. If we buy a car, if Rev gets his car financed at 5% and I got 6%, and we borrow 30 grand to buy a car. There's not that big a difference. But if we spread that over 30 years and borrow $300,000 to buy a big, nice home, I mean, we know how much more interest we pay. So, so when the, the people that control the borrowing and the distorting of the free market, they're also in charge of setting the interest rates. So they're in kind of a um, damned if I do, damned if I don't sort of dynamic. But I want to go to this for a second. Um, the Wall Street Journal did a, a very interesting uh, opinion piece yesterday. And it's called the humbling of the Fed. They, they referred back to some of the other research that has been done about the Federal Reserve. And I had no idea of this. Um, the Federal Reserve has about 24,000 employees. <laughs> I figured that would be a bit of a high number. There are about 2,500 that work for the Board of Governors. I mean, it's a multi-layered bureaucracy, typical um, has become an institution, enormous influence in all of our lives. More influence than China has, more influence than Russia has. We bump into the Fed at every turn. You don't know it, I don't know it, but I'm beginning to try and understand more of it. Because I said, you know, a couple of weeks ago, how many times have I said over the airwaves, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve? I didn't understand that, but I had kind of a very elementary, I mean, a juvenile understanding of the balance sheet of the Fed. I don't have a PhD in the balance sheet of the Fed yet. But I'm heading there, and I'm trying to more clearly understand it. But here's what stuck out to me. You ready? The, the, the Wall Street Journal hired a reporter, and the reporter went out and, and dug into the voter registration of the, the economist. How many economists work at the Fed, Rev? 780 economists <laughs> full-time employed by the Federal Reserve. Um, per their voter registration, 10.4 Democrats to every one Republican. Let me say that again. Per their voter registration, 10.4 Democrats to every one Republican. So 780 economists are doing some of these, um, here, here you go with the word, you ready? Econometric modeling, statistical biases, 
I mean, th- these are words that I'm beginning to understand. I don't understand these at the, at the expert level by any stretch. I'm not sure I'll ever have the ability to understand them at the expert level. I'm not an economist. I, I'm not a, I don't have a master's in economy or statistics or, or, or econo, uh, econometric modeling. But, but the Wall Street Journal went into the voter registration files and found out that of the 780 economists employed by the Federal Reserve, there are 10.4 Democrats to every one Republican. Now, it's supposed to be politically insulated, right? It's not supposed to be biased in its um and it's confronting the monetary and financial challenges of our nation. Um, but you got about twenty five hundred employees working for the board of governors. Ninety eight point six percent of those twenty five hundred employees do not have to made do not have to make their um their pay public. They're protected by some of these you know you can FOI salaries in the public sector and whatnot. Um, you can only do about two point actually about one point eight percent of the people who work for the board of governors. It, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, um, it's an intertwined, I mean, it, it's complicated. I mean, that's all I can say. It is extremely, extremely complicated. Here, here's another interesting number. Then we'll go to our call of the 50 to 60 year old economist working for the fed, 6.5 Democrats to every one of the 40 and younger economists working for the fed, 20.3 Democrats to every one, um, and it's kind of a Keynesian model. I mean, they, they bought into Keynesian economics, and that's the dominant, um, as they do these econometric or econo, um, yeah, econometric modeling and statistical biases, it's, it's heavily influenced by people who believe in Keynesian economy mm. or economics. Let's go to the phone. Here's Larry in the PD. Morning, Larry. Good morning. Um, here's what I want to, I'll tell you, you were saying you don't have a PhD level of What's going on with the Fed? I'm going I'm to give you the the uh, maturity rate of people who study the Fed. They begin going, I don't know anything about the Fed or what they're doing. About halfway in, they go, you know what? I think I finally understand what they're doing. And when you come out at the other side, you're going to say, I have no idea what these people are doing. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you that's what you're going to find. I that's kind of where I'm headed. That, that's exactly where I feel like I'm headed. Yep, uh, that that is that's where you will end up. Um, I don't have a PhD understanding of the Fed, but um, I do I do know this. Bernanke is really where it began to go Keynesian really hard. Um, you know, we we credit Bernanke with getting us out of uh, the Great Recession, but a lot of his detractors say, well, we could have had a very mild sharp downturn, a very short sharp downturn, instead of having a ten year drag like we did um but that's what keynesian economics will, will kind of get you um one thing though about uh the fed for sure they're no more federal than federal express i mean they are not a federal anything um and and yeah but they are intertwined and i think about jefferson i think it was him that said you know that the big businesses and the big banks would surround uh washington dc and I think that, you know, the Fed is a great example of that. I mean, they, they are, like you said, inextricably intertwined in the comings and goings of the federal government uh, to an extent that they can control. But, you know, when you say the Fed printed this and the Fed printed that, the Fed printed all that money to cover the expenditures that Congress authorized. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we say, well, they're out buying bonds and they're buying uh, certain stock issues on Wall Street, yes, 
but the government authorized them to do it. They they may have lobbied for it or, or suggested this would be a good idea, but it was our our elected officials up there in, in Washington that, that allowed it, that authorized it. And the problem that we have with all of it, all of it works great as long as the, the customer, in this case governments and private entities and hedge funds, go along. So when the Fed needs to sell some bonds, you know, you talked about, you know, you don't, you don't just you give your the Fed your money and you get this interest payment every year. But at some point in time, that instrument that you're holding matures and you get your original investment back, and the Fed doesn't want you to do that. Sometimes, sometimes they do want to put money into the economy. Sometimes they don't. And the problem is, what if you don't act right? What if you don't go ahead and re-up with the Fed and say, okay, I'll get another 30-year uh, bond with you now that this 30-year bond has expired. What if you say, you know what, nah, I think I just want my money. Well, what if everybody did that? I'm hoping that, well, I mean, I, I'm hoping they don't. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, that you know, that that's a valid point. We talked a little bit about that. Larry's called in before. And kind of going down that road, uh, we got to take a break. Don't want to get too far behind here, but but I, you know, it, it's a complicated matter. But but I'm convinced of this: we bump into Fed policy every day of our lives, whether we know it or not. Back in a minute. See, I would argue when you look at the breakdown of the uh, 780 economists that work at the Fed, and once again, Larry's probably right. You don't know much about it. You begin to study it. You understand a little bit about it. And then you get so confused, you convince you don't know anything about it. I mean, I think that's the trek you take. I think that's the path that people like me, um, I'm not sure anybody understands it. Now, now, the one thing I do understand with clarity is the the, the job the Wall Street Journal did in attaining the voting, uh, I don't know, the, the voter registration information of the economists who work at the Fed. And when I say a Democrat economist in modern monetary theory day, um, or, or quantitative easing ways. I mean, I hear Keynesians. I mean, that, that's, you know, John Keynes. I mean, that's what I hear. These are Keynesian economists um, that, you know, call them Democrats if you'd like, but but they believe that government spending on infrastructure or unemployment benefits or, or education will increase consumer demand. And as a result, the economy will thrive and prosper. I don't buy that. I mean, I still subscribe to classical economics that, um, that increasing business growth is the way to boost uh, the economy, and the government should play a limited role in that. Uh, some of the cycles that are necessary, you know, to um, to call the herd, may I say, to find winners and losers. Uh, to me, that's classical economics, and Keynesianism is just the contrary to that. So, so when we say that, you know, um, I give give another example: the people that uh, the economists at the board of governors. Here's where I get even more confused. You know, where, where is the dividing line between the board of governors? And the Federal Reserve. In other words, if you're an economist, how do I know whether you work for the Board of Governors or you work for the uh, the Federal Reserve? Uh, there's something else you get real confused about. But of the of the economists that work for the Board of Governors, and I don't know how the Wall Street Journal decided, but they probably did a better job than I. It's forty eight point five to one. So the economists giving advice to the Board of Governors who have a large hand in setting monetary policy and uh, trying to control inflation and labor and all these other sorts of things. I mean, 48 and a half Democrats to every one Republican. Hmm. Well, what I hear, I don't hear Republican Democrat. I hear 48 and a half Keynesian economist and one, you know, classical economist that believe 
that increasing business growth will boost the economy. Um, it, it's confusing. I mean, there, especially if you absolutely challenge um, as I am, it's real confusing. But but I'm beginning to understand enough to give uh, reasonable commentary on what I suspect to be uh, the case. I think one thing Larry said, without saying it, if you don't know anything and you begin trying to understand and study and you get to a point where you think you know a little bit, stop. Don't confuse yourself. Don't try to go any further uh, down that road. It's very significant to me to find out how many Democrats are, are giving the Fed advice in comparison to Republicans. I mean, that, that's kind of the, the revelation that I found. I mean, I, you know, when I read that 780 economists work at the Fed, it didn't surprise me. It probably should have floored me, but it didn't because it's the federal government. And I expected a certain degree of bloatedness and, you know, waste and, and people there that probably don't need to be there. People um, having offices and, and giving advice probably shouldn't have an office, shouldn't be giving advice, but that's the nature of government. Interesting that somebody decided to check these economists' voter registration. I mean, something had to be the, I don't know, the genesis of why someone felt that was a legitimate pursuit. Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, I'm not one of the 435 members of Congress. I'm not one of the 780 economists that work at the Federal Reserve. But I know if you spend trillions of dollars you don't have, you print money out of thin air and you give it to Wall Street or purchase <laughs> government debt. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't be a serious nation. I mean, in all honesty, we probably need more G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip economist at the Federal Reserve. We probably need more. I mean, I, I've said... I've said many, many times over the air and, and the political people, uh, the, the real world is something Washington doesn't have a lot of familiarity with. And, and, and when you convince yourself, Rev, and it's, it's a lot of um, it's political speak and it's theory and it's, um, it's hypothesizing about things that may or may not be the truth. You know, when I read the Wall Street Journal, I'll also read, I've told you this before, I'll read a lot of the comments. I mean, if you ask me where I get my sensibility of, of where we are today, it would be in the comment section of the National Review, the comment section of the American Conservative, and the comment section of the Wall Street Journal. Because the writers are normally agenda-driven. I mean, they, they need to get clicks. They need to get likes. They need to get a following. They, they need people to, to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, subscribe to the National Review, subscribe uh, to the American Conservative. But, but the, the opinions given by the readers are normally subscribers, right? So, I mean, they're willing to, 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 to pay $10.99 or $12.99 or whatever it is to be a little more informed than most. Um, I've told you before, the National Review kills it. I mean, Rich Lowry, who is the editor of the National Review, I mean, I get email after email after email about what, what do you think of this? Or we're doing a poll on that. Or what do you think about this? I mean, that, these guys are unbelievably interactive. Now, now, once again, they're not the kindest and most gracious to President Trump, but he's not a traditional Orthodox conservative. So they have this, um, I don't know, this um, conundrum that, you know, we're, we're kind of sort of on the same team, but we kind of sort of aren't on uh, the same team. We'll tolerate you, but man, we'd really ha rather have, you know, somebody like Paul Ryan or some uh, Jack Kemp, a disciple of trickle-down economics or supply-side economics, something that is more academic in nature. But when I read the comment sections, it, it kind of leads me down the road of where I think the American public are. I'm not talking about the Seinfeld crowd. I mean, the Seinfeld crowd couldn't tell you 
much at all about the Federal Reserve. Uh, the subscriber to the Wall Street Journal, subscriber to the National Review, subscriber to the American Conservative have a little better understanding. It, however elementary or juvenile it may be, there's still a little better understanding of that. But when you read the comment section of these um, of these articles about the, the, the Federal Reserve, that there are some of these guys you can obviously tell have studied more than I have and have a, a more informed opinion than I have. But there's a there's a consensus amongst, you know, a Congress who votes to spend trillions of dollars we don't have in hopes and anticipation of the Federal Reserve they have no legislative oversight over will eventually just print enough money to make it all go away. Uh, but that is that a banana republic? I mean, we're, we're Pretty being, wild. I mean, we are a we are a superpower. We are a declared superpower. The rest of the world looks to us for leadership, and our leadership decides. Four hundred thirty-five members spend trillions of dollars we don't have, in hopes and anticipation that the Fed, of which they have no legislative oversight over, will some way somehow print enough money to make it all be okay. Now, but that's insanity, isn't it? Let's go to the phone. It's pretty crazy. Here's Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Boudreaux. Good morning there, Ken. I I don't take exception with you very often, but I'm going to have to say anybody that's truly aptitudinally challenged is not going to use the term aptitudinally challenged or conundrum. Uh, But anyway, uh, we'll give you a pass on that. Uh, I did not get to listen at all yesterday, and much to my chagrin, did you get to meet the president in person over the weekend? I did. Well, I my, my daughter and I were in a room. My daughter, I mean, I'll take you behind the scenes a bit. My daughter and I, I got asked okay. to be an honorary co-chair. And I told Rev it was a little bit funny because I found out in the room that about half of them didn't want me to be an honorary co-chair. The other half went to bat for me. But, I mean, that's typical in, uh, when you're a scarred former politician. But, yeah, Trump came in. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Boudreaux, he was flying on the jet that belongs to the owner of the New York Jets. Woody Johnson was was in the room, but there were probably 75 or so of us in that room, and um, it was a bunch of politicos and fundraising sorts and and, and a few really, really wealthy people. But, um, yeah, he came out, said a few words uh, in in somewhat of an intimate setting, and then he went out and put on his rock show or his wrestling match uh, to the masses. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, I'm glad you had a chance to do that, and I – I just was not able to listen yesterday. Things did not work out, and I, I just had to call and find out if that had actually happened. And uh, so uh, I, di- I didn't have quite the rock show Saturday night in Greenwood, but I uh, had a good show. But I would I think I'd have just soon been there seeing uh, President Trump. Anyway, enjoying your show, and uh, that, that's all I had. Aptitudinally challenged people don't say aptitudinally challenged there, Ken. I think you're a little brighter than you want to get credit for, but that's okay. I get it. You got you to play the part. You know, I do the same thing every damn weekend, folks. Listen, y'all have a good day. I'm Boudreaux. I'm like a fat kid playing dodgeball. I'm out. Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate it. Um, 843-661-0937 is our number. You asked me yesterday, what, what do you mean some didn't want you on? Uh, yeah. This is not about me. I'm not I, trying I, to make I it about hear, me. I want to hear this whole story. Well, I mean, this, the story is this. Um, there are those in, in Columbia – that never wanted me in Columbia. I mean, we've talked a little bit, not extensively, but we've touched on uh, some of that. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in a town with no stoplight, dropped out of college, um, registered to vote at the age of 40. I ain't got many checks in boxes when it comes to what you do and what is required of you to pay your price uh, to represent the public. 
Uh, the one thing I think I had was a, a pretty understanding of the rank-and-file voter. I mean, I'd lived with and around the rank-and-file voter uh, the majority of my life. So they begin putting an honorary co-chair committee together for Trump's visit, Trump's rally to South Carolina. And, and there were some that wanted me on the on the um, the, the co-chair committee, others that didn't want me on the co-chair committee. And th- nothing surprises me about any of that. Um, the three or four people that really went to bat for me went to bat for you. And I'm talking about you, the listener. Um, when my name got brought up, and the only name, well, let me two names that were absent were Nikki Haley and Mick Mulvaney. Uh, Mulvaney worked for Trump, was a member of Congress. Nikki, obviously, former governor and ambassador to the UN. And she and Trump are just at odds. I'll, I'll give you another little bit of inside information here. I think I touched on this yesterday. Trump wanted to be highly critical of Nikki Haley. I mean, he wanted to be highly critical of Haley I mean, during, and her, his, during, during his, his speech. speech. Yes, sir. I mean, he wanted to blast her out of the water. Um, that's just his nature. But some people that advise him said, Donald, if you do that, that'll be the takeaway. I mean, you know, all the major media reporting will be about Donald Trump goes to South Carolina and lambasts Nikki Haley, his former, uh, you know, his former ambassador to the UN. This is about Russell Fry. This is about Katie Arrington. This is about America first. This is about the movement of which, you know, you're, you're the spokesperson for. And the fact that, um, that Nancy Mace has not been, um, you know, to, to your liking when it comes to her doing her job at the first congressional district. We know that Rice voted to impeach Trump. So we know the bad blood, bad feelings that are there. Um, and I think that's really smart. Whomever convinced Trump to not make this about he and Nikki Haley gave him really good advice. And let's give the former president a little bit of credit. I mean, we hear he doesn't listen to anybody. He took it. Well, he, I mean, took he took the, the advice. advice and said, and from what I'm gathering uh, from some of the insiders, he said, you're right. I mean, that would become the story. That There will be a day for that. Um, he did mention Nikki in his comments to the 75. I don't know about when he did the rock show, but to the 75, uh, he said something about Nikki, and it was kind of a mixed reaction. He said, no, 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 we'll, we'll get to that. I mean, we'll eventually get to that. Um, and I think Nikki's trying to play two parts in this. She's trying to be America first when it's convenient, and she's been something other than America first when that's been more convenient. But, but I want to give you guys, and I mean this sincerely, um, the only reason I was asked to be honorary co-chair on this Amer- Save America Super PAC visit to South Carolina is they believed that I had that I had a understanding at the ground level of America First and the Trump phenomenon. I mean, it's easy as a Speaker of the House to be disconnected from the political realities. I mean, your, your life is involved in what? Dealing with the House and setting policy and, and trying to drive an agenda and, and, and exercise the, I don't know, the authority granted to you as Speaker of the House. And you get a bit disconnected, removed uh, from what the realities are. So those that advocated for me to be an honorary co-chair were basically advocating for you, our listeners, to be an honorary co-chair um, because they felt we, that they felt the the connection we make, the conversations we have were exactly what they needed to be aware of. Where are the America First voters? Who are the America First voters? What do they have on their mind? What are their priorities and sensibilities? And I do think that I can sit down in a room with 75 um, highfalutin former and current politicos and discuss America First in a way that very few of them understand it. But the reason I can do that is this interaction we have every single morning. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I, listen, let's be, Kayla, Kahaley was one of the guys that said, really? I mean, Trump's coming to South Carolina. We're going to get the opinion leaders of the Trump movement to save America, uh, make America great again, you know, America first movement. And, and you don't want this guy in the room. 
He talks to these people every day. From 6 until 10, all they do is have conversations about America first and save America, the pros and cons and what they like and what they don't and what they don't like. So the only reason I'm in the room, and I'm not pandering here. I mean, I'm not asking anybody to vote for me for anything. The only reason that I'm in the room is because the conversations we have with you are an ingredient that must be mixed into um, some of the misinformation that I'm hearing. I mean, I heard two or three really bright people in that room say things that were just, to me, ludicrous and insane about what they believe and what they think and and their feelings about America first and where they believe it is. Red, we talked yesterday, and and we'll touch on this again this morning, because I think our audience was slow to come around yesterday. You know, the first day back for the weekend, a weekend of which we sprung forward, you know, you lose an hour's worth of sleep. I'll have to admit, um, I came back late yesterday afternoon, did some prep work, so I wouldn't have as much to do this morning because I, I was in a bit of a fog yesterday I, I was tired last evening about dinner time yeah the, the biological clock will it'll take a week or so to kind of adjust itself and and get back to some sense of normal but um but the conversation we had yesterday and um and once again it's a little bit like the fed i don't know but but let's talk about these things um how many of you are america firsters because there is a whether you admit it or not there is a devotion to a man this man shows up This man creates energy. The energy changes the political world, and your loyalty is to the man for doing that. Now, now some like, some don't like that, but it's a political reality. None of this happens if it weren't for Donald Trump. I mean, the energy's there. The emotions are there. Uh, You used to buy Freddie Freeman, the intangible. The intangibles were there. Uh, Some of the tangibles were there. But but somebody had to capture that. Somebody had to um, be a spokesperson for that. Somebody had to be very recognizable, very... very, um, Ah, he's a lot of things. You know what I mean? But 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 name ID is something Trump brought to the table instantaneously. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody kind of sort of had an opinion of Trump, not as a political figure, but as a celebrity. I like Donald Trump because he's bombastic and he's, you know, he's in your face and he says these things that need to be said. I don't like him for the very for the very same reason. So there's a universe of people out there in America First Land who have a personal devotion to a larger-than-life political anomaly, political phenomenon. There is another universe of people out there that, that, have, um, that have been attracted to this America First movement because they believe that it's worth paying a dollar or two more for a golf shirt or a brake pad if we don't close down the three plants and employ half the town and everybody under the age of 60 end up on meth or opioids. I mean, that's my reason for being here. I was perfectly willing to accept Trump as the political blunt instrument, the wrecking ball that I thought it was going to take to get us in the room. Now we're in the room. What sort of policy do we execute? Um, Remember the point I made yesterday? Um, The people in that field, and I'm not talking about the 75 people in that airplane hangar. The 75 people in that airplane hangar, other than a couple of um, celebrity seekers, a little bit paparazzi, but there are probably two or three there just to see Trump. They don't know anything about politics. Um, I mean, I'm with my daughter. My daughter's kind of a political enthusiast. I mean, she likes politics. She likes being around politics. It was cool for her to be up close and personal to a former American president. But but the, the people in that airplane hangar, they know who Donald Trump is, and they also know who J.D. Vance is. If you get out in that airfield with those 10 or 12 or 15,000 people, and you say, how many of you know Donald Trump? Every damn one. I mean, there's no doubt. There's not a single soul 
in that universe that doesn't know Donald Trump. The follow-up is, how many of you know J.D. Vance? And it's probably 60-40 that don't. It may be more than that. It may be 70-30 that don't. And, and what the next step, remember Bill Barr said, America First has to mature? Part of the maturity has to be the next time we have a rally in an airfield in Florence and Donald Trump's there, it needs to be 80-20 those that do know J.D. Vance, those that are motivated not by a devotion to a single man, but by the fact that we've closed three plants that employ half the town to save a dollar on a brake pad and a golf shirt, and now half the town is on meth and opioids. That needs to be the maturing process. You know, I can't mature it. It's got to mature itself. But I would hope if we do this again in three or four years, it's 80-20. And I'm using J.D. Vance as an example because he is a, I mean, I don't know that J.D. would be called a Trump acolyte, but J.D. Vance is an America firster and, 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 and somewhat similar to me, Rev. I mean, he's on a higher scale. He's more noteworthy than I'd ever be. But, but I've lived the life. J.D. Vance has lived the life. The problem Kahaley says with those trying to orchestrate America first, they don't understand it. I mean, how many of those people worked at a body shop? I'm not talking about in that field. There's a lot of people in that field that have farmed and construction worked and, and put roofs on houses and had dirt under their fingernails and sweat on their brow. How many in that airplane hangar honestly understand and, 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 are, and are sympathetic to the America First movement? I mean, they're there because he's a former president and they want to be a big shot. I mean, 60 of the 75 in the room are not America Firsters. They're people who want to be up close and personal to a former American president for a myriad and variety of reasons. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jeff in Florence. Morning, Jeff. Morning, y'all. How y'all doing? Hey, Jeff. How are you? Good. You know, Ken, um, I've been a Trump guy from day one, um, and but I'm America first, and I'm not America first because of Trump. Um, I'm America first because I was raised to, uh, you know, love my country and put our country first. And, you know, I drive through towns like Marion and Pampico and even Lynchburg's got one. And you see all these old manufacturing plants shut down with the weeds growing around them and old junk car stored in front of them now. And it just kind of hits home. You know, I got friends that are farmers and, and who are getting killed, you know, because we import food that we can grow right here in our country. And it doesn't make sense to them, and it doesn't make sense to anybody. And, um, you know, personally, you know, I would like to see DeSantis run. I know I'm probably going to say that right, but, um, you know, versus Trump. I just think Trump, like you were saying a few months ago, kind of needs to be the kingmaker, if, if, if you will, of the movement, and then kind of let new blood move in there that can kind of, you know, do what he started. Um, but with that being said, you know, if Trump runs, I would love to see DeSantis be his VP and then run for president next go around if, if they sort of happen to win or however that works out. So, you know, I'll just kind of chime in on, on your question And I am America first. It's not really because of Trump. It's just because of the situation this country's in and I see people hurting, but I'll take it all the air. Guys. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. Hold on. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Rev had an experience. I want you to tell our listeners what sort of experience and, and what you thought about as, as you saw it. Well, and, and it just made me think. So I, I was in the crowd. I mean, I just went and waited in line, didn't go into the hangar, um, just, but just wanted to be there. So, What uh, made you want to be there? I mean, because you told me you weren't going. 
No, because the weather looked weird at the beginning of the week, and, and it was. I mean, the weather was rough and cold. There there was no doubt about it. And and see, you're, you're going to think this is weird because it almost sounds like, you know, it's all about the man. It's all about the man, which it is in a way. Okay, I feel like in a small way, I deserve to show my support. I appreciate. You owe him that. Yes. Okay. And and that's you know, not weird at all to me. I mean, me, I don't think that's. I don't think that there's there's nothing weird about that. I mean, the the guy put himself out there and he got the crap beat out of him by forces from all sides for five years. I think he did a great job, made great uh, decisions as president, and uh, and for that I owed him showing up and being there in the uh, in the crowd. Um, so. We made our way into the crowd, stood amongst the people, and we weren't close at all. I mean, we could barely see him. I mean, if people, you know, sort of, since it's flat ground out there and his podium was not that high off the ground, um, you know, people had to kind of just naturally stand in a certain way, and we could kind of look through the crowd and see him. So I was out there. But what I, what, what I was going to tell you was uh, there was a gentleman standing by right beside me, just a, just a you know, regular guy. But I noticed when he raised his hands up to, to put his phone up above the, the heads of people to, to grab a picture like we all were doing, um, I looked at his hands, and they were dirty. That's a working man. Dirty hands, dirt under the fingernails, and it just made a little impact on me. I said, here's the guy right and, here. And, and I'm going to tell you, you can't duplicate that. You can't. I mean, that's organic. That, that there is a connection, an intense connection and that's really where we go from here, Rev. And I don't know the answer to this. Is that transferable? Uh, how many, let, let's, for argument's sake, let's say there's 10,000 people in that field. How many of those would do that if Ron DeSantis were the speaker? Or if J.D. Vance were the speaker? Or if Josh Hawley were the speaker? And I'm talking about these America First. These guys, well, well, I don't know if they're put-ons or not. I don't have any idea how committed DeSantis is to America first. Josh Hawley, are, are they are they playing the game of political expediency? I mean, all politicians do. You figure out which way the wind's blowing, and you don't fight it for so long. You kind of go along with it. Here's the here's the funny part to me, and it's a little bit, I mean, I, I, I hate to say this because I don't gain any joy in other people's problems or, or issues or transgressions. I've just not, I've never been that way. I'm not wired that way. I mean, you know, there's some people, uh, when you slip and fall, they take a little joy in it. You get what you deserve. I've never been uh, that sort of person, and I think that's probably the way my parents raised me. You know, if somebody slips and falls, try to help them up if you can. Um, but the, the the beauty in all of this, if there's any political beauty, is that the GOP has no idea what to do. I mean, they, they, they don't have a clue. They wish they could put, you know, things back like they were. In other words, we've got a Democrat party that's liberal. We've got a Republican party that's conservative um every now and then we have these brush fires the christian conservative the tea party uh the occupy wall streeters on the other side there's always been these um these hissy fits within but we've never encountered anything like this and if and if i really wanted to be obstinate or difficult when drew uh mckissick the scgop chairman said you know on the show friday after trump called in uh and got off the air that would have been t- uh, thursday when he called in and drew said you know we've seen these before We've never seen anything like this ever in my lifetime. Um, I don't know if there's a precedent to this. Um, you know, we get out of our car, and I made a point to kind of walk through the crowd, and it's like a NASCAR race. I mean, it's like a tailgating experience. It, it's and and there's a camaraderie there. To your point, that there's something about these people that believe they have a voice. They know they'll never be in that hangar. The only reason I'm in that hangar is because of you. 
and I looked up and won a statewide office. I mean, there is no other reason I'm in that hangar except some people in Trump's world said to those who didn't want me in that hangar because of my past political transgressions that there were three or four voices within the Republican Party who said, that guy speaks to those people every day. They like him and he likes them. They have a very intimate bond and we don't want him in the room. Well, the reason they don't want me in the room is because I don't want Trump to go away. I want America first to win. I'll be as candid as I can possibly be. Give me traditional Orthodox conservative via the National Review or give me America first. No, no matter how uh, wild and, and rambunctious it may be, that's the team I'm on. I mean, if I've got to throw the GOP in the ditch, I'll throw the GOP in the ditch. I want America first. I want the Republican Party to immerse itself as a political party of the working men and women, the guy you're talking about with a little dirt under his fingernails. See, that's the problem with the GOP right now. The political hierarchy in the GOP, what I'll refer to as the, the elite establishment, they, they need that field to be full. They need those people with dirt under their fingernails, but they don't really like them. They consider you to be a little less important than they are. They're, they're the architects. They're the engineers. They decide who does what. As long as you show up and vote as you're supposed to, you'll do just fine. You didn't do that in 16. They told you to vote for Jeb. You didn't. They told you to vote for Kasich. You didn't. They told you to vote for Christie. You didn't. You voted for Trump. They'll never forgive you for that. But they know now, reluctantly, you ain't going away. They've got to deal with you in some way, shape, or form. Let's go to the phone. Uh, the, oh, the call dropped. Okay, I'm sorry. sorry. 843 yep. 6610937 is our number. Um, we had a call and uh, probably got too <laughs> long-winded and um and went down that road too far. But that's just uh you know fundamentally that's the way I see this. And um and, and you know we're talking about Tom Ross's race. We talked about Liz Cheney yesterday. I've got a um kind of kind of an interesting read here about Liz Cheney um in Wyoming. Uh, without an aggressive campaign strategy to win over Democrats. Liz Cheney has no chance to win in Wyoming. Um, but some Democrat voters in Wyoming are beginning to embrace her. Now, there's not a lot of uh, Democrats in Wyoming. I mean, it's, it's a heavily Republican state. In fact, I think it's probably number one or two in states that Trump won with the widest margin. I mean, it's just, you know, and then we've said it before, I'll say it again. This is not to be racially insensitive, but this is a political reality. Um, Wyoming is largely white. Hence, it's largely Republican. I mean, you know, we talked about the black vote, the African-Hispanic vote, and uh, the lack of diversity in the Republican Party. Well, Wyoming is a bunch of white people. White people who vote traditionally Republican. Liz Cheney, for her to win, she's got to find the Democrat voters in Wyoming, um, I guess that, have, uh, that, that will appreciate her work in Congress, not for what she's done, but for prosecuting Trump. You know, that's kind of the, um, and, and that's what we've got to accept as America Firsters. We've got to understand that there's not an equal energy, but there's an opposite energy that does not like Trump, that would rather banish him from the political scene, not because of his political stances or leanings or biases, but because they find him um, disgusting and repulsive and offensive and vulgar and indecent and all these other other sorts of things. The, the quandary that I find myself in, and, you know, we all get ourselves in pickles and situations where we kind of get conflicted. Um, there's nothing about Trump the man 
that I was taught to admire, right? I mean, humility was celebrated in my world. Is Trump humble? Don't think so. Um, selflessness was very important in my world. Is Trump selfless? I mean, I would imagine with his kids and family, he probably is as a father as a father would be. But but I mean, Trump Trump is uh, I mean, he, he's he. You're going to have to deal with him, whether you deal with him as a presidential candidate or whether you deal with him as somebody on the periphery. You know, having ten thousand people show up in a field—that's all I need to see. I mean, when I when I passed the airport and I saw the parking lot and I knew that Elton John wasn't in town. And I knew the Beatles hadn't gotten back together because half are dead. I mean, I knew that, that you know, wow, wow. I mean, if you're, if you're I mean, let, let's be honest. I mean, they, they won't be, but let's, hypothetically, if there was some honesty out there and you're a Tom Rice supporter and you're riding down the road past the airport and you look over to your right and you see what appears to be a rock concert or a NASCAR race and you find that you stop at the convenience store and you find out what in the world's going on back there. And someone says, Trump's in town to endorse this congressional candidate running against Tom Rice and Nancy Mace. I mean, if that doesn't shake you to your core, then you're not being honest with yourself. Not not a hundred people, not a thousand people. In normal political times, if a candidate can draw 500 people, it's unbelievable. I mean, Obama would draw a couple of thousand every now and then. I mean, he went to, you know, Obama would have an event in Chicago, and there would be three or 4,000 people show up. There have been about 20 events that Trump has had in excess of 20,000 people. So take the crowd. I mean, the guy's not running for president. He's not president. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a political deal maker right now. He's a political endorser right now. And there's 10,000 people in Florence County? And do we question whether he's still relevant? He's the most relevant political figure in America today, like it or not. And second, my friends, ain't close. Because you know the most sec- you know the second most relevant political figure in America today is Barack Obama. If Joe Biden announced that he was going to land Air Force One at the airport in Florence, the president of the United States would have how many people show up? A few hundred? Maybe. I mean, there, there would be some curiosity seekers. I mean, I, I may go. You may go because you want to see a president. You want to see Air Force One. But other than the curiosity factor, Biden wouldn't draw a crowd. Obama would draw somewhat of a crowd. But 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 Donald Trump shows up not running for any office simply to affirm his endorsement and ten to 15,000 people show up in Florence, South Carolina. In the freezing cold. In freezing cold. Threat of rain. I mean, imagine if the weather had been 60. Imagine if all week. The weather had been clear in 65. There would have been 15, 18,000 people instead of 10 to 15. I mean, the, the weather probably calls three to 4,000 people in attendance. Uh, and we hear about how nasty these people are and how vulgar they are and they're troubled and you got to have law enforcement around. You know, you've heard this. I mean, they're rabble rousers and they're out of control. The same night MAGA was in town, we had a gang fight at the mall. I mean, you tell me where the crimes are being committed. I mean, I don't know of a single offense at the Trump event. It's kind of interesting. They were so complimentary of my daughter. I mean, she's a younger person. She's 19. Um, they, they would go out of their way. They'd be in the Trump crowd. Now, he's trying to sell her a T-shirt, too, and a hat, <laughs> you know, for some veteran. You know, they're, they're trying to raise money. There was we, plenty of opportunities. Yeah, yeah. oh, that. my Lord. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I, I've been around. I mean, I didn't, I didn't register vote last 40. But since then, I've been around... In the last 20 years, I've been around a lot of politics and a lot of political events. 
when I got in my truck, all I could do was kind of laugh. I mean, I, I didn't know what to do other than go like, damn. I mean, look, look at this. I mean, this is a guy not running for office, not in office, but, but confirming an endorsement. And there are 10,000, somewhere between 10 and, and 15,000 people waiting with bated breath all day long. And I think Rev made an interesting point. You felt like you owed him that. You felt like because he had done what he's done and took the beatings he took, you needed to be there if he was in your hometown. Mm-hmm. That there were many, many, many others doing exactly the That's same thing. That's not weird, is it? No, it's not weird at all. I don't think it's weird at all. I think it's um honorable that you would act on that impulse. The impulse of, hey, that guy's done more for what I believe than anybody ever has, and he's coming to my town. And because it's a little bit cold, I'm not going out there. That's the loyalty I'm talking about. This guy does not have a base. This guy has a following. Can that following translate into a political movement that is not about the devotion to one man, but an ideology, a perception, a political persuasion that, that you know, the, the forgotten man has been forgotten. And, and there's a, it's time to remind them of the forgotten men and women. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. A couple of callers. Let's go to the phone. We have Vern in Sumter listening to WDXY this morning. Hey, Vern. Good morning. Good morning. How you doing? Good morning, sir. How are you? Got Good, good. Got a comment. You know, we was talking. I was just want to go back to 10,000 people showed up. And I was going to make a comment about the the how many thousand that wanted to go that didn't make it. Um, I ride all of us south carolina and in my job and i heard the call a while ago about the factories closing down and if i get wound up you have to cut me off because i'm passionate about my country and it ain't it ain't the donald trump thing that's me i wasn't a donald trump fan but whenever he got in i changed my position quick because i've seen he done what he said and if you look at the factories closed down we sent our jobs everywhere it's just not america first no more i'm just passionate about my country i wanted to go but wasn't able to Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. And a lot of people feel that same way. Um, And the weather, I mean, the weather had a lot to do with this. I mean, the weather was not looking good all week. Uh, We even thought it was going to be, you know, it went from being a big chance of rain to cold and windy. Um, Under any circumstance, it was bad weather. And I'll tell you, it was painful. I mean, standing in the cold for a number of hours, I mean, three or four hours, kind of in the same place, not able to, to move very far and trying to bend and stretch a little bit to keep your muscles moving. My hips, my neck, and every muscle. It was a very painful walk back to the car, a mile to a mile and a half, by the way. And then it took all day Sunday to recover. Yeah. And um, the the argument I've tried to make, and, and I don't know that I do as good a job at this, because I, I mean, I get this busy head syndrome, and I got six or eight things running around in my head, and I'm trying to get them all out at the same time. <laughs> but, but, you know, we, the maturity factor of this, and, and look, guys, I come, as many of you do, from a place that saw what, what globalism will do to a community and, and what exporting jobs and the deindustrialization. Jeff and I had a respectful conversation yesterday about whose fault that is. Um, I would argue some of that's policy. Now, some of it's corporations and an obligation to be profitable and go into places they can pursue more profit. I mean, if, if China will build your widget with slave labor and no regulations, then you know, you've got to make a decision as a business owner. Are you okay getting in bed with that sort of manufacturing capacity? I would like to think we aren't, but apparently we are. Uh, we put profit over people, shareholders, stakeholder capitalism. There's a lot of this. But my concern, excuse me, my the, the reason I'm devoted 
to America first. And I am a devotee to America first. I mean, I, I'm not your, I'm not the Republican I was 10 years ago. I'm just not. I mean, my devotion is to America first. And this is my sentence. And this is, what, this is the way I characterize it. And I've said it redundantly over the air. But I want people to clearly understand that, that my devotion is not to Donald Trump. I mean, I'm a Trump supporter. I'd vote for him again if he ran. I would enthusiastically support him if he ran again. But I'm more interested in a political movement that understands when you close the three plants that employ half the town to save a dollar on a brake pad or a golf shirt, there are consequences. There is collateral damage. You, 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 you destroy people's livelihoods and a way of life. And then everybody under the age of 60 ends up on, on meth or opioids. That's my motivation. And that's why I am supportive of a political party that puts the American worker and the American middle class as its priority. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. Hey, what's up, guys? Um, I genuinely want to know the answer to this um, from the professors, um, sincerely. When you mentioned the Fed, Ken, I get the impression that I agree with you. Do you think the Fed is one of our biggest threats to our um, republic? Bigger than China or Russia. Right. Okay, so the question would be to the professors, are they comfortable with the fact that over 90% of the people working for them are Democrats? And do they think that they're acting incompetently or competently? Now let's go to inflation up until the point of Putin invading the Ukraine. Do they, th- do they think that Biden handled the economy and had anything through his, was this handling the economy that led to displacement competent or incompetent? And do they believe government spending had anything to do with it? Now, of course, if you're spending money you have in surplus, no. But if you're printing money to spend money, do they think that has anything to do with inflation? And do they think that that's been handled competently or incompetently? The price of gas up into the invasion that went up a dollar fifty. Do they think that Biden has anything to do with that? And did he handle the price of gas competently or incompetently? Now, my response would be if they are saying that it's competent, that every one of these people and things were handled competently, then they are in the fact admitting that it is being done on purpose. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. And Breeze has always believed that. You know, you, you blame it on incompetence. That's the easy out. Uh, it, it may be far more maniacal and diabolical than incompetent. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Dawn in Florence. Good morning. Good morning. I wanted to share with Ken. I'm sure he has vivid memories of this also. Um and my children still remember it to this day, but uh, someone we here in this area stood in the cold for and supported was Ken's inauguration day. That was the coldest day that I've ever been outside for that long a period of time, especially to support somebody. Uh, My dad worked for Ken at the time, and we meant we were going to be there for Ken and Nikki Haley. And it was a lot of fun, but, man, it was cold. Thank you, Dawn. Appreciate it. It was wow. very cold. It was extremely cold. I actually sat in a TV truck. I had to be somewhere to do a TV interview early that morning. And I mean, they just I come hanging around outside. I got to beat on the door. Hey, man, let me in. 
but it's cold <laughs> out here. I mean, they didn't Don't ask you know me who I am? They, they were like, yeah. well, I mean, it wasn't any of that. It was just like, dude, really? I mean, you asked me out here. You're not ready to do the interview. Let me in the truck. And then I got in the truck. We started talking about Gamecock football and oh, NASCAR cool. and Jefferson's Ocean Bourbon and all these other uh, sorts of things. Um, thanks. Uh, yeah, it was cold. I mean, it was real, real, real cold the day I got inaugurated. Um, yeah, I, I want to share a story on the other side. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Played that song for a reason. When you look at the Trump movement, when you look at the America First movement, it's dominated by rural America. I mean, it really is. When you look at rural America, I want to say this before we even go any further. Our two professors had conflicts today. They won't be here. Um, they'll be back next Tuesday live and in living color. Um, one had a family event and the other had a scheduled um, something that had to take priority and precedent, something to do with his job. So we'll miss those two guys today. So Breeze, I'll um, I save those questions <laughs> and we'll make sure we put them on the spot. Or Breeze will remind us between now and, uh, and next That's Tuesday. Right. No doubt. But no, um, no scholarly conversation this morning about all things political. I do want to go back to John Mellencamp's song. Uh, I was born in a small town, live in a small town, taught the fear of Jesus in a small town. Um, there have been a lot of changes in America. The urbanization of America is one of the major influences in our political um, landscape. We talk about the coastal elites. We say that a little bit um, whimsically because it's sound, you know, like those coastal elites who live in the Hamptons. You know how they like to tell the rest of America what to do. But there has been, we talk about the deindustrialization. There's also been a uh, kind of an urbanization of America. Uh, in 1970, about 66% of our population lived in cities. Today, about 83 or 84% live in cities. There's a dramatic decline in rural America. Um, that's near and dear to my heart because that's where I'm from. Uh, that That's that's who I am. Uh, we all come from somewhere. I think I said it a while back, home is not where you are today. Or it's not only where you are today. It's also where you come from. Uh, where you come from will always be to some degree home. Uh, I mean, home is for me. X and X and X and X and X and X drive, uh, X and X zip code, but home is still where you come from. And we are gradually losing rural America. Some will argue, well, that's the nature of the economy. I mean, if people chase opportunities, and if all the opportunities are in urban settings or in cities, that's where people will go. The, the point that Jeff and I debated a little bit yesterday, is that a result of policy? Or is that the marketplace dictating, you know, where you go? I, I would argue, and this goes back to Jeffersonian, Hamiltonian um, government, about agrarian economies and rural manufacturing. Um, it's probably, it's, it's a lot more complicated than we can do in a one-segment radio show. But it's partially government. I mean, I think policies could empower corporations or, or embolden corporations to stay home. I mean, I think there are things we can do as an America First agenda that would... Um, encourage businesses to stay home. Um, but a lot of this is business ethic. A lot of this is the morality of the people. I mean, Rev, let me ask you a question. How much more are you willing? I mean, did you even give it any consideration before Trump shows up? And we start talking about deindustrialization and the hollowing of the middle class, the stagnant income and, you know, urbanization. Uh, how, how much did you think about that before Trump came along? Because you're not from rural America. I mean, Trump didn't speak to that part of you. You don't True. find that as relatable as I do. I mean, you've seen me on this show a couple of times get emotional. I mean, I, I get real emotional about what's happened to small-town America. 
I mean, it's sad. It's a travesty. Um, is it a result of the marketplace or is it um, some trade policy? And I think it's trade policy. NAFTA was very intentional. NAFTA was um, based on a political ideology. Um, globalization is not an economic force as much as it is a political ideology. I mean, I buy into that. I mean, I, I think with all my heart that there are good and decent politicians who think globalism is a result of the free market. I don't. I absolutely believe that policy has played a large part in this. Nobody talked about that until Trump shows up. And all of a sudden, uh, by and large, the rural, the, the rural American felt like they had somebody advocating on their behalf. And the great miscalculation done by the American political class was what do we do? I mean, what, what do we do with the, with the people? I mean, th- these aren't just, when you say um, 800 people lost their job, 2,412 people lost their job, uh, the manufacturing plant closed down in 612, those aren't numbers on a sheet of paper. Those are lives and a way of life. And uh, the human carnage was what we failed to properly understand, and Trump touched that. Trump tapped into that. Um, that's the reason I thought Trump had a good chance to win. Because I think there is a lot of sympathy out there in America, flyover country in particular. Um, I think there are a lot of people who have left rural settings, moving to urban settings, not because they wanted to, but because they felt forced. Because the lack of opportunity in some of these rural settings, and a lot of this was the manufacturing plant, uh, the the industry that employed half the town. Um, All of a sudden, that plant's in India, China, Malaysia, Vietnam, uh, Pakistan, wherever. I mean, name a country, and that's where they went. And I do believe there's business ethic there, uh, but, but I, I think there's corporate decision, fiduciary responsibilities that boards of directors have. But I think political ideology, I think globalism is a political ideology. And Ross Perot said back in the, what, 92 election, that that big sucking sound you hear will be all the jobs leaving America as a result of NAFTA. NAFTA was not, let me ask you this, if we did have free and fair trade, why do we need trade agreements? I mean, if we believe in the free market, the unfettered, uh, the liberated free market, why do we need uh, diplomats negotiating trade deals? Because we don't believe in the free market. And when you have a choice to advantage a corporation over a working family, guess who gets the most attention? The corporation. That's populism. And I understand that's not a coherent governing philosophy, but it's a powerful political emotion. And it's very prevalent. When 11 or 12 or 13,000 people gather in a field, to show devotion to a man and a movement, the political world will eventually pay attention. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey there. How are you doing this morning? Doing good. How are you? Uh, uh, I'm doing I'm doing as good as can be expected. I'll tell you one thing about Trump is he kept, if you talk about integrity, doing what you say you're going to do, and honesty is, being, is, is saying what you did do, Trump is off the scale with integrity as far as I'm concerned. Any president I've seen uh, all the way back to Eisenhower as far as keeping the what he, the promises he made. And, uh, yes, I think uh, as far as you're talking about small town, the destruction of the small communities, that is policy. And it was long and it started long before NAFTA because. When I was when I was growing up, uh, this before you were born, Ken. There in every little town, there was a miller, 
and there was an abattoir or a slaughterhouse, and they prepared the food. We we prepared local food in just about every community, and then they passed the policy. The big uh, grain companies, Peruna, Perina, and all those. Uh, got together and said, uh, we need to make certain regulations on how we grind the grain and everything. And all of a sudden, went to uh, mill mill the grain one year and took took our corn or oats in there. And he said, this is the last year I'll be able to do it because I can't meet these regulations anymore. And so the miller went away. And later on, the the slaughterhouses were closed up for the same reason because the small operations couldn't meet the regulations the government was putting on them and uh, that kind of thing has been happening long before nafta nafta just opened the floodgates and the, and uh, another thing is we're run, doing this green scam and it is a scam every bit as much of a scam as that nuclear plant up there in fairfield county I mean, every machinist and every first-class mechanic knew that those that those th- those uh, fittings would not marry up, and they anybody could hold the ruler to the to the uh, the screw holes, and the the screws knew that they would not marry up, and that and they did that thing and did a billion dollar scam against people of South Carolina. And, uh, we have now have, uh, dominion running our power plants, uh, up there in Virginia, but that's, and that, that's another scam. But the thing about the green revolution and everything, I don't see Elon Musk says it'll take two and a half maybe maybe uh, more power plants to charge the vehicles. Well, I don't see them building power plants, and it takes six or eight years to build a power plant um, once you get the all the right-of-ways cleared. And that's not happening. So as far as I'm concerned, this whole green thing is a scam. And we're not going to be drug around by, uh, I, I don't know, I guess magic elves are going to, uh, power the electrical grid or something that I don't know about, but uh, I, I, Elon Musk, if he doesn't know how it's going to be powered without a power grid serious upgrade, then I sure don't know how it can be done because he's way above my pay grade as far as intelligence. Well, and he's probably the, he's the driving force behind this, or he's a visionary entrepreneurial spirit behind all this. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate the call. Um, I'll say this before we get our next call. Mike touched on a lot of different things there. Um, mass consolidation and pulling up the ladder led to a um, fewer opportunities for you and it kind of a mass consolidation in the marketplace. In other words, there was a day in America, if you wanted to fly from point A to point B, th- th- there were 20 airlines and there was competition between those 20 airlines. Um, and then we got in the world of mass consolidation. That gives fewer choices. That leads to less competition. That leads to higher prices and a declining in service. I'm not saying they, I'm picking on the airlines here for a second. Um, they don't have to give you Pepsi and peanuts now because you choose them or one other. I mean, it's a little bit like insurance companies. I mean, if you're going to fly out of a regional airport, there's normally one carrier. Now, if you want to drive two hours, two and a half, three hours to another airport, that's a different that's a different story. There are options there. Um, but, but mass consolidation 
has been a big part of um, the declining uh, choices that consumers have. And then Mike was talking about pulling up the ladder. That's what we called it in politics. I mean, a company, the, 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 the great misnomer in America is that big companies or big corporations don't like regulation. Big corporations like regulations as long as they get to write it. I mean, they'll write you out of existence. Uh, you know, th- there's an old, I don't know, a trade practice in, called bid rigging. You know, if uh, you'd, you'd, Rev would have a um, uh, commercial advertising can exist under any circumstances as long as it only happens between 10 and 6 in the morning or 6 and 10 in the morning. I mean, there, there's, there's bid rigging. And a lot of this is, I mean, it, it's the art of politics. But, but pulling up the ladder. Uh, in other words, we've got uh, a legislation established that allows us to have an upper hand. Now let's regulate everybody else. We've already built the model. I mean, we know how things need to be done. Who do you think wrote Obamacare? I mean, do you think members of Congress really sat down and instituted every word, the verbiage in the monstrosity of legislation that is the not so affordable care act? Of course not. I mean, the insurance companies, the hospitals, the big pharma, I mean, all those folks have paid to have a seat in the room when that legislation gets drafted. Go back and look at hospital stocks pre and post Obamacare. Look at pharmaceutical stock pre and post Obamacare. Look at insurance stock pre and post Obamacare. Um, I mean, you know, we have this mass consolidation. And when you do that, um, you have fewer choices and you have a more concerted effort to make sure the world works as they desire the world to work. Now, I want to go to um, the green energy because I'm a believer in renewables. I mean, I'd love to see a day that I had solar panels on my home that powered and stored energy necessary for me uh, to power my house. I'd love today the day that I can um, not worry about Saudi Arabia or Russia or, or, or any of these oil-producing countries that hate our guts, and I can plug something into a wall and it charged, and I can do, go drive 500 miles. We're just not there yet. And the, the equation or the analogy I use, Rev, is you and I would be kind of TV snobs. I mean, both of us would, would be mm. somewhat TV snobs. Um, I like to watch the race. You like to watch the, the Braves play in as clear a, a, you know, a, a television set as possible. But, but if I knew that there was the, um, the next iteration of high-definition television and mine was on the blank, but this next version is coming out in a couple of weeks, I wouldn't go buy a new TV. I'd wait a couple of weeks. But if I thought it was going to be a year or two or three, I'd have to go buy another television. I mean, I'd bargain shop, and I would, I would always anticipate this next variety that's going to be so much better. Well, that's where we are. And the Democrats have convinced themselves, maybe they haven't, maybe this is propaganda, but they believe that this revolution is right around the corner. And it's not. It's simply not the case. We're not going to stop producing energy via fossil fuel anytime soon. I mean, unless you want to sit in the dark and cold and walk everywhere you go. I mean, Jesus did. Why can't you? Um, but we're just not, that's not going to happen anytime soon. That there, there is, there, there's a process that must take place. It will be driven by market forces and economic feasibility. It, it will be free market based sooner or later. Somebody will, 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 will I don't want to say stumble on. I mean, they, they, they'll invent technology, technology, no question about it. In, uh, development and, and, and over the, time, the, the lithium battery will be more dependable, uh, more affordable, um, more uh, more consistent um, a longer charge we'll get there sooner or later Probably cheaper but it's not going to be a government edict 
I mean, it's just not. That's just not the case. You can't subsidize ourselves off of fossil fuels. You can't subsidize green energy companies to do things they aren't ready to do yet. So, so if, you know, if I've got a television and my television goes out, and I know in three years there's going to be this, this great high-definition television unlike any I've ever seen, I'm not waiting three years. i got to go buy TV. We, we've got to power an economy. And as we begin to transition from fossil fuels, you know, I don't know that we can ever get to a place that fossil fuels aren't a major contributor. Maybe not the predominant source of energy, but it's always going to be a large contributor. I mean, Elon Musk is as innovative as anybody in that field of expertise. How does he launch rockets? Rocket fuel. I mean, how many, how many, how many rockets has Elon Musk launched via an electric battery or a solar panel? Oh, no, he's got to have thrust and propulsion. And right now, uh, the rawest variety of energy that, you know, the, the, the energy that he needs and is required to launch a, a vehicle or an aircraft into space, I mean, it's not electric. It's not it's fossil fuel. And we're going to be that way for a, an extended period of time while we innovate and while we create cleaner and more renewable opportunities. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. What happens when rural America begins to get smaller and shrink in population? Uh, the political representation uh, creates a power struggle. I mean, it's it's a um, we we've we've kind of faced that here in Florence. I mean, in the PD region Redistricting, of right? South Carolina, of South Carolina, no question about it. You've got certain uh, congressional districts have to be so big, Senate districts have to be so big, House districts have to be so big, and when let's take Horry County as an example. Um, Horry County is exploding in population. Uh, the PD is not. So the political representation of the PD begins to get watered down, and it becomes more emphasized in Horry County and the population centers, which is really the way it should be. I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the, the elected officials should represent X number of people, and you can't force people to build houses in the country and, and, and you know, mandate or decline people the opportunity to build in the cities. I mean, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that for a second. The point I'm trying to make is we need a manufacturing renaissance in America. And if we had a manufacturing renaissance in America, it would increase opportunities in rural America. And, and I'm saying this as a, uh, as a homer, and I'm giving full disclosure. I am a homer for rural America. Rural America is a vital part of Americana. And if we completely obliterate any sense or, or, or recognition of rural America, we are fundamentally different. I mean, there's something about rural America that is an important ingredient in what we call and refer to as Americana. And once again, if we neglect that to the point of completely losing it, doing it away with it, not, not being a part of our, 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 our human fabric, our, our social fabric and well-being, uh, we're fundamentally different if we do that. You're not from rural America, Red, but I think you appreciate and respect oh, yeah. some of that. Yeah, no, uh, I grew up in the, in the city. Yeah, you're a city boy, you can tell. Scared of everything. What? Yeah. Oh, you can tell, can you? What's that like? Tell me what that's like. Yeah. What can I you hear. tell? Yeah. Let, let's go to the vault. Here is David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, Ken. Hey, he is from rural America. He, if he lived in Coshocton, he's from rural America. That's been a little time. Yeah. Small town. By Ohio. definition, you are. You're right. You're right. Come on, my man. You spent some time there. Give us some credit, us us little country boys and this and that. I was thinking about um, – Getting to my Trump being in Florence, uh, I hate to admit this, man. I went and saw John Kasich here in town back in 2016, and he was a Marion. And I guess, well, hey, I, you know, I kind of like Ohio myself, but 
I, he may have had 300 people, 400 people, whatever. I think when Joe Biden came here in 2020 and got to deal with the Catholic Church, whatever, I don't know how many people would, would come see him. Uh, and I actually went down and saw Kasich. He actually went to Orangeburg. I give him credit. He went to Orangeburg, South Carolina, to the Duke's Barbecue on Chestnut Street. And he may have had a couple hundred people. So I see, you know, the envy there. You know, if you're a big-time Republican, maybe you'll go to Hudson's Barbecue in Lexington. You ever heard of that one, Ken? I think I have. Yeah, and then you have the Yorktown, I think McCain, uh, He when he won the primary, whatever, Yorktown. I think about uh, Mike Huckabee back in 2008 here in the South Carolina primary. I think he rented a plane or something. He's kind of doing what Trump does. He rented a plane. He went like to Greenville, Columbia, uh, Rock Hill, Hilton Head. All he was trying to do was get on the local TV right before the election. Well, Trump is above all that. So this is what they cannot stand about Donald Trump. He don't need anything to get any publicity. Um, So that's what they don't like about Donald Trump. But I want to get to Ukraine just for a quick second and I call this, what was that game called? Risk, the game of world domination. And I can assure you, man, if I've been sitting back in like Russia, China, Iran, good gosh, this is my opportunity. I mean, we've got hacks and these these continuous campaign mode people in charge uh, of this government. Uh, it's unbelievable what you can get in this brief period of time because they know they've got so much time before Republicans win some elections here. And it just blows my mind that we sit here and argue every day, or the people, the media argues about how the United States is racist. I don't see many different cultures in Russia and China and Iran and those type of countries. You talk about racism, that's a lot going on. And this whole thing with Ukraine and, and, and Russia, I don't see many Hispanics and black people over there. This is about world domination. So I'll leave you at that. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. You know, I want to go back to this debate about rural America. Um, would you rev as a, I mean, you're a conservative guy. You want limited government. You want lower taxes, less involvement, less um, less influence on the yes, economy. Yes, yes. But, but would you agree that if we are to reinvigorate rural America, let's argue, I mean, we don't know this to be the case, but let's, let's assume that the overwhelming majority of rural Americans uh, support America first. I mean, I think the data shows that fairly clearly. Uh, you know, African-Americans in rural America are still voting Democrat, but Trump won rural America white votes by, oh, Lord. I mean, mo- more than any. I mean, it's probably more than Obama won college uh, college professors. I mean, it would be similar to that. I mean, college professors probably voted for Barack Obama 90% of the time. Rural America, rural white America probably voted for Donald Trump 90% of the time. So as a, as a free market um, conservative, would you support an agenda that included government distorted the free market in favor or to the advantage of rural America? And by that, I mean um, incentivizing agricultural companies or or some of these extractive industries, oil and, and gas and, and coal. I mean, we're not drilling for coal. Excuse me. We're not drilling for oil or, or digging for coal in Manhattan or Los Angeles or Dallas. I mean, these happen in rural areas. Um, we, we know the globalization of manufacturing has been... Uh, very much benefited China and India and Malaysia and some of these other emerging markets at the expense. But would you advocate, as a conservative Republican, a free market Republican, can you imagine an agenda that included 
government distorting the market to advantage those that we believe, and I think you agree with me, they've been disadvantaged over the past 30 or 40 or 50 years as a result of NAFTA, probably 40 years. But 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 can you get to a place? And I think that isn't that kind of what J.D. Vance says? Yeah, but can you can you shape policy that would make it more even and not be advantaged one way or another, but fair? Is there a way to you see what I'm saying? Yeah, sure, I do. But 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 I you know, you know that may need some sort of government inter- interve- intervention or you know control. I don't know that government's been unfair to rural America. I mean, I, I don't I don't know that I'm arguing. I mean, I, I don't I've I've never seen agricultural policy that disadvantaged rural America. Well, what about rural America manufacturing? Well, I mean, the green energy plan. I mean, the green energy plan would be directly effective to rural America because, once again, you don't dig for coal in an urban setting. You don't drill for oil in an urban setting. Those things happen out in rural America. So so if we're going to adopt a green energy plan, guess who pays the most significant price? I mean, I get Exxon, corporate America. I understand Shell and BP. I mean, the, you know, the ivory towers in the major American cities – but out there in in, uh, in flower country, there's a workforce, and they're trying to produce energy for Exxon, for Shell, for BP, some of these international conglomerates that have an American presence, but maybe or maybe not be. Uh, I think Exxon's an American company. Shale, didn't Shale merge with a couple of other oil companies? BP, I mean, it's British Petroleum is what it is what it stands for. But but could we, as free market enthusiasts and conservative Republicans, support an agenda? That, that was going to, you know, I don't know, going to address declining opportunity and employment in rural America by subsidizing some of the agri- agricultural aspects, some of the um, extractive industries, um, so some of the manufacturing sector, that globalization and the, you know, the globalizing or the exporting of jobs led to a declining in economic growth and opportunity. Um, can we get there? I mean, I could. I look at it more through this prism. Can we do something that would... Uh, counteract the ability of some of these corporations and interests to have the lobbying effects on the government and government policy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but I mean, the right to petition your government, you know what I mean? That's I, know, I, mean I know that, right. I, I mean, I, but, but I'm just saying, yeah, if, sure. if we believe it, there is a disadvantage, that's probably a big reason why there is one. So why can't rural America, the working man, the small town, however you'd, you'd uh, uh, identify these people, how can they have more of a fair interest and fair control and influence over their representatives? The first thing you've got to admit is they've not had adequate representation. Well, well, here's the deal. I mean, in a perfect world, nobody lobbies the government. The government does right by the people, right? I mean, if, if that we, would be great. I mean, that, that would be great. I mean, that, you know, when they drew the Constitution, Bill of Rights, Declaration of Independence, I mean, they, they had this um, utopian view. I mean, I don't think they were naive. I mean, of course they weren't naive. That's why they put so many, uh, so few concessions in limiting liberties and freedoms and government involvement and intrusion. I mean, when you, when you, and I've said this a hundred times, I'll say it again because it's never said enough. The Constitution is in place. Why? To protect government from its people or protect people from its government? What, what we're asking is to be a, list, a little less constitutional than we'd like. In other words, I'm, I'm offering up as an opportunity, let's take government and uh, when I'm arguing against it, I say, let's weaponize government. You know, let's weaponize government against urban America in favor of rural America. Let's go to the phone. Here is Barry in Shaw. Hi, Barry. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, look into this company, Origin USA out of Maine. It's Jacko, the Navy SEALs uh, company. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Pete Roberts. Uh, he's trying to trying to go back to American-made, and they, they have factories. They just bought a factory in Asheboro. 
their second factory, the biggest jeans manufacturer in North Carolina, and they just bought it. And he would be really good to have on this show. I mean, it's exactly what you're talking about, taking back, because we have to we have to go against the globalists. This is what we have to do. And as a state, I think that's what we really have to do. The government, I don't think the government's going to do it, so we have to take it back as a state, as a city, as a county. Uh, Pete Roberts, Origin USA. Look into him, Ken. You'll love it. That's interesting. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate the call. So can we do things at the state level? I mean, I don't think anybody has a lot of faith in the federal government. But can the states be some of these working laboratories to experiment in how to empower businesses in rural America or advantage businesses in rural America? Uh, I mean, South Carolina is still a southern rural state. We're nowhere near as southern as rural and rural as we have been historically. I mean, South Carolina is a very different state. Trump even said that Saturday afternoon when he spoke to that group in the airplane hangar. He said, you know, South Carolina is a very um, interesting state. It's old South, but it's not. I mean, it is the um, it's the North American headquarters of Michelin. It's the North American headquarters of BMW. It is the the place where the Dreamliners built. I mean, get your head around that for a second. I mean, the North American headquarters for BMW. One of the, um, the, the, the luxury sedans of the world is built in um, Greer, South Carolina. The Dreamliner, one of the most innovative airplanes in history of aviation, is manufactured in Charleston. A lot of the engineering is beginning to take place. Um, the Darlamore School of Business has a school within that uh, on aviation and aerospace technology, basically um, just this side about rocket science. So, you know, South Carolina has fancied itself for a long, long time as a poor southern rural state. We still are to some degree, but it's a uh, it's a very diverse state and a fast-growing state. Um, a lot of transient population, people moving from up north uh, down south for warmer weather and um, a cheaper way of life. Take a break. Back in just a minute. I'm going to give you two real quick statistics before we go to the phone. We've got a couple of callers. Hang on two seconds. Would it would it surprise you if one of every three rural counties in America since 1970 has lost one third of its population? That's pretty. That's pretty hmm. staggering when you think about it. One of every three wow. rural counties has lost one third of its population since 1970. Let me give you another number: 75 percent of rural counties in America today, the largest employer is the school district. I mean, those are just two random factoids uh, of which you can do whatever you choose to do with it, but it really suggests a d- dramatic decline in rural America. Let's go to the phone. Neil in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Neil. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, coming from the perspective of a, of a Kansas farm kid uh, who went to the uh, esteemed university, uh, Kansas State University, the same one that uh, Dr. Coffin went to, but came out with decidedly different viewpoints uh, than he's got. Um, and now being a, a, a Sumter City boy, I think the fundamental question you're asking is, do we provide representation to our government based on geography or based on by numbers? Um, you do it based on numbers and you end up with California and New York can dominate the entire country. And I think our founding fathers were wise enough to say that these United States needed to be represented based on population, thus the House of Representatives, but also needed to retain their individuality just the, you know, in the United States Senate, but by everybody being equal, regardless of whether you're Rhode Island or you're Texas or you're Alaska. Um, 
that equal representation. But it's interesting that the federal government through the courts reversed that at the state level back in the 60s. And see, that's where you've got a problem here in South Carolina. Prior to then, I believe South Carolina had one senator per, per county mm-hmm. um, representing just like the U.S. government. I think there's still a lot of merit in that. Um, does somebody, and, and no offense to, to the new South Carolina residents, but does somebody who just moved down from New York City living in Horry County need to have an equal say in state agricultural policy as somebody who's lived in the PD their entire life and understands the agriculture of the area? Um, you, you've seen that problem manifest itself in Colorado where the idiocracy along that um, the Rocky Mountain corridor, basically between Boulder and, and Colorado Springs, implements all this green buffoonery uh, that's affecting farmers. And we, we know a family that moved from eastern Colorado to Maysville because they could no longer uh, sustain their agricultural business out there because of the stupid policies that the greenies had, had put in. So, That's a, no, that, I, 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 you know, and, well, and, and one more piece of this is repeal 17. So everything for me about the federal government comes back to repealing constitutional amendment 17 that made senators directly elected by the people, make them elected by your state house and then allow the states to allocate their senators based on county, based on geography. So. That's an interesting point, Neil. Thank you. Um, that's a, kind, of, kind of an interesting concept. I've read a lot about uh, repealing the 17th Amendment. And, and you know, the um, he's right. I mean, there used to be a supply bill. You didn't vote on the supply bill? The Senate. You know how many senators there were? How many counties there were? There was one senator per county. He voted on the supply bill. He basically brought back home the money, and the money got dispersed accordingly. Um, that's kind of an interesting – I've never thought of that analogy. So a new – a new South Carolina resident, Moose Story County, and, and their vote influences agricultural policy just as much as someone who has lived on a family farm in Barnwell County all their lives. Uh, unequal representation, disproportional representation. Do we have time for this call? Uh, about a minute 20. Okay, so. let's okay, okay, let's go. Uh, got a minute and 20, whoever it is. It's Jim in Florence. Okay. Hi, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. I have to say that Cato's uh, welcoming uh, when he answered the phone was a lot more personable than uh, Mr. Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> That's because Cato was chummy, man. He's chummy. <laughs> and I'm all business. I just have to put you on hold and move on to the next. Sorry. <laughs> you, are, you are very direct. I, I was I was going to say a lot of what Neil said, the case he's talking about is Reynolds v. Sims. Um, but to go more in depth with it, it's an, I think that we took the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court's taking the 14th Amendment, um, of the equal protection clause of that and just way overused it to go into one man, one vote um, with that Reynolds v. Sims and taking away our representation um, rurally uh, with that. And, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you guys. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for waiting. Should have given you more, more time. Couldn't back in just a minute. Eight, four, three, six, six, one, Oh, nine, three, seven is our number. Um, I think someone just took a jab at Rev if I'm not mistaken, by calling him Mr. Ohio. And I don't think they were saying that uh, in, a, in a friendly sort of way. They miss Cato and his chumsy uh, or his chummy disposition. If someone held on during the break. Let's go to the phone. Good morning, fellas. Hey, how are you? Good, 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 good. Um, uh, I'm Ashley from uh, Potions Corner. Um, well, we're training somebody. The, re- the reason we didn't have a uh, – uh, that didn't go as well as it normally does – Rev has given up the seat to somebody we're training uh, to take over for. Um, maybe they'll be nicer to you folks than Rev has chosen to be. Um, but Sandy's um, 
manning the station now, uh, first day here, and I'm trying to help a little bit as we address our um, our, our deficit of labor at Wake Up Carolina. So, Ashley, the floor is yours. Well, we, we, we do miss Cato. I'll be honest with you. If I had to play Bruce Springsteen for three years every Friday, I might look for another job. <laughs> there I'm you just go. Saying. Yeah, I'm there, just saying. Yeah, he liked the job. It was Springsteen he couldn't tolerate. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, what, what I was going to say, I don't know if y'all have ever looked into ESGs, if you know what I'm saying when I say ESG, mm-hmm. um, environmental social governance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to be one of the driving forces in the Democratic Party because they can't get legislation on the Senate side to to do these environmental or social governances like they want. But what they have done is snuck these ESG uh, executive orders into agriculture. FDA talks about it every day. Vilsack talks about it every day. They've snuck it into SEC. They snuck it into the Fed. As a matter of fact, uh, the woman that, uh, uh, what was Alexander? who was uh trying to get the 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 new fed uh board member yeah aoc is trying to get the the lady's name is um sarah bloom raskin 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 Mm -hmm. she's all for implementing esgs on the fed level to pull back funding for banks that you know support oil support things that they don't want. Mm-hmm. They're doing it two ways. They're doing it legislatively and they're doing it executively, sneaking these policies in in the back door, and that's going to be the ruin of ruin, rural America. You, you, I mean, it's in crop insurance. It's in farming. It's in every aspect of our life, and they snuck it in from day one. And that's in, take it off well, there. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. And that's what we were talking about a second ago. I mean, energy exploration and you know, mineral extraction, or let's say commodity extraction, whatever sort. I mean, let's say we're talking about limestone or any sort of aggregate. Uh, th- those aren't going to be urban businesses. I mean, those are going to be rural businesses. So the green energy plan, I mean, if adopted, and, you know, I got a bit of uh, information here about ending civil service protection, the Pendleton Act. Um, Trump said over the weekend that they're going to, and I don't know what he means by we, who is we? I mean, he's not an office holder. He's not running for office. But he says, we will pass critical reforms, making every executive branch employee fireable by the president of the United States. The deep state must and will be brought uh, to heel. Um, what he's arguing is we've got a completely politicized government bureaucracy um, and these idealistic leftists are filling all of these government jobs. And um, thank God Manchin yesterday pulled his support from uh, from Miss Raskin uh, because she was. Uh, an environmental wacko. I mean, she believes in in some of these ESGs and uh, the implementation of policy and and, and regulation and legislation, which would um, coincide with policy that would um, uh, make it more complicated to extract from the planet Earth, to um, to farm the land, to to build plants and businesses, um, to produce energy, whether it's uh, drilling for oil or digging for coal, but Joe Manchin—he's from a—he's a West Virginian and he's in an energy-producing state. But but he made it clear yesterday, and I found this very interesting. We talked a little bit about it much earlier this morning. He said his problem with Sarah Bloom Raskin is not her position on climate change, but rather she has 
a position on climate change and regulation um, as a, a nominee to the Federal Reserve. She is one of these supervisors. Um, and he goes on to say, Manchin, a Democrat, goes on to say, the Federal Reserve Board is not an institution that should politicize its critical decisions. The time has come for the Federal Reserve Board to return to its defining principles and dual mandate of controlling inflation, suck at that, ensuring stable pricing, they suck at that, and, uh, and maximum employment. I would argue they suck at that because the unemployment numbers, not the real numbers, workforce participation rate is what we should be paying closer attention to. And then Manchin says, I will not support any future nominee that does not reflect these critical priorities. Now, now Ashley's arguing, and, and I think Trump's making the point in the announcement he made or the pronouncement he made. Trump's not in office. Trump's not running for office, but he still has a bully pulpit, and people still pay co- close attention when he says these things. But the Federal Reserve is not Congress. It, it's an institution that was created by Congress, um, and it you know by design in the early days it was intended to play this um, this extremely limited role and in a system that is dominated by, uh, imagine this, the U.S. Congress, those who we do vote on. Um, but, but, you know, Sarah Bloom Raskin has convinced, you know, all Republicans and a few Democrats that she doesn't understand that, that, that her nomination is going to empower her to regulate business, not just control inflation, not just monetary policy, and, and the reason she says these is not only is monetary policy critical um, to American prosperity and advancement, but, but climate change is as well. And the Fed has to have or take on an activist role in you know, declining funds to certain uh, banks and financial institutions that are funding, um, let's say, you know, oil exploration or, or coal exploration and some of these and that's just bizarre to me. And that's why I argued earlier this morning, and I want to clear this up. Um, I said earlier, two texts since then. Um, did you really say the Fed is more dangerous to Americans than China or Russia? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's some provocateur in that. But when you look at the Fed and what it does, we, we kind of began the show this morning with some of the research I've done. And Larry, our good caller, said um, very accurately and appropriately, here's what you do when you're trying to understand the Fed. You begin because you don't know much about the Fed. You get to a point where you're beginning to understand some of what the Fed does, what its um, what its priorities are, what its mission is. And then you get a little deeper and you realize you don't know much about the Fed. I mean, you're more confused after the fact than you were before you began. The Wall Street Journal had an article this week, uh, actually day before yesterday, and the name of it, I think, is the... Um, uh, the Fed in turmoil or uh, the, the struggles of the Fed, something to that effect. And once again, this is the Wall Street Journal, which is fairly mainstream media publication. But someone who works for the Wall Street Journal did a deep dive in the Fed. Um, now, once again, this writer for the Wall Street Journal probably doesn't understand it any better than I do, but it's their job to dig around and plunder around and see what they can find. They report to the editorial board, and out of that comes an op-ed that basically explains some of the politicking of the Fed, some of the politicization of the Fed. Um, I asked somebody this morning how many employees the Fed has. I mean, if you had to guess, just randomly, I mean, don't ask anybody to call in and tell me. I mean, this isn't a trivia question. you got to guess how many employees at the Fed. It's somewhere in the total federal um, system, there's about 24,000 employees 
that, that work for the Federal Reserve. The Board of Governors is who execute policy. I mean, they have a lot to say about monetary policy and inflation and job creation and interest rates. Um, that's the Board of Governors. They have about 2,500 employees. So the Federal Reserve has 24,000 employees. The Board of Governors within the Federal Reserve have about 2,500 employees. 780 of the 2,500 are economists. That stands to reason. I mean, you need economists helping project and forecast and, and model some of what you think is coming or you're worried about what is coming. I mean, we know inflation is a big deal today. Stable pricing is a big deal. Supply chains is a big deal. Interest rates, nearly everything they do is a big deal. They just don't do it real well. So you begin to say, okay, why are we continuing to see the Fed's activism um, when, when interest rates, excuse me, when, when inflation is rampant, when we're having tremendous issues with supply chains, um, when, when excessive printing of money has led to fiat currency, I mean, why is the Fed not more engaged? Why, not we, why are we why not more aggressive in curtailing some of the quantitative easing and advancing interest rates increases? Well, the reason is, if you dig in, and then somebody at the Wall Street Journal, give them credit, not me, somebody went down the road of the 780 um, economists who work at the Fed and what their voting registrations are. Are they registered Democrats? Are they registered Republicans? Registered Democrats at the Federal Reserve outnumber registered Republicans by 10.4 to 1. I mean, these are the economists giving advice to the Fed in general of what to do or what not to do in relation to inflation or, 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 or spending or quantitative easing. Um, they're doing some of these um, econometric modeling, statistical biases. I mean, all of these economic theories and some of the uh, academic understandings of the economy are on front uh, center stage, front and center. And, and out of that, you know, so you got 780 economists advising, uh, I guess, to some degree, the political apparatus, uh, the Jerome Powell, Janet Yellens of the world. I mean, they're economists as well, but they take advice from some of these other economists who do this modeling and, and statistical biases um, to, to decide what or what not to do. Um, up until, I think, last week, we were still quantitative easing. I mean, we were still basically printing money and buying government debt or corporate bonds. Uh, I think it's about $4.5 trillion as we speak, but that money, I think it stops now, but I think it was last week. When they announced they were going to begin increasing interest rates, it was about the same time they announced they were going to discontinue some of the quantitative easing. So here's why I think it's more dangerous than China or Russia. That's an ident identifiable foe. I mean, it's easy to see what China uh, where their leverage is, where their strategy lies. I mean, they manufacture and we consume. That They've got a lot of leverage in that negotiation. Um, energy production. We've decided for whatever reason, I mean, we know the reason, the green energy bill and the AOCs of the world, the liberal Democrat, believes that we could wake up tomorrow and everybody have an electric car and a solar panel and everything will be just fine. Uh, no serious person believes that, but Democrats don't have to be serious. I mean, they've got a kind of a propaganda arm in the, in the media uh, they're able to sell their bill of goods to whomever is buying without any sort of um, confrontation from people challenging them as to why they believe this or why they believe that. But, but then you add um, the, the number of, and when I hear Democrat economist, all I hear is Keynesian economist. I mean, it's a, it's a Keynesian model that we're following where the, the quantitative easing is very Keynesian in nature. 
uh, the low interest rates, very Keynesian in nature, uh, that they believe that government can spend and create demand, that the government spending is uh, the catalyst that leads to economic activity and, and economic growth. I mean, I don't buy that for a second. I'm more of a classical economist. I think the market forces dictate supply and demand. And I think supply and demand is an invariable, whether you are a Keynesian economist or a classical economist, you're going to have to account in some way, shape, or form for supply and demand. So when you supply the economy with liquidity, I mean, it increases the purchasing power of the consumer. And and hence, um, you know, if, if I've got a house for sale and there are two buyers, there's one price. If I got a house for sale and there's 100 buyers, there's another price. I mean, that's the, um, the subjectivity of supply and demand. But, but when you look at, and this is even more discouraging or more revealing to me, of uh, the economists age 50 to 60 that work at the Fed, um, it's 6.5 Democrats to every one Republican. And once again, these are voter registration, or this is voter registration information. When you look at 40 and younger, I mean, these are the guys that will chart the course economically of America's future in relation to the activist Fed. Um, 40, excuse me, 20.3 to 1 Democrat over Republican. So when you really, when you start boiling this down, and I think this goes to, to what Trump is saying, um, let's say a president gets elected and the president does not like uh, the, the, the course charted by the Federal Reserve. And the president says, I want to get rid of all 780 of those economists because it's far too monolithic. It's far too liberal. It's far too Keynesian. It's far too, uh, far too many of those people believe in modern monetary theory. It's almost impossible to get rid of a federal government employee because of the Pendleton Act. Because the Pendleton Act basically says that you, you can't get rid of a federal employee because of politics. They have a right to believe politically whatever they choose to believe. Um, but when you've got, I mean, imagine if, uh, uh, and I understand the dangers. I mean, I get this. Imagine um, that we had AOC in charge of a government agency. We had 100,000 bartenders or former bartenders turn, you know, uh, crazy um, communist socialist. All of a sudden, they're running the country or filling the ranks of federal agencies. I mean, that scares the hell out of everybody. Here's a former bartender turned economic guru, turned member of Congress. Imagine if all of a sudden, you know, government agencies were full of those kind of people. So I understand um, why the repealing of the Pendleton Act is a bit controversial. Um, but you've got to attach some sort of accountability to the president. And right now, remember we got angry with Trump because he didn't replace enough of those people embedded in the bowels of government or the dark uh, halls of Congress. I mean, we didn't, you know, uh, Congress replaces itself via the consent of the ballot. In other words, you get elected or you don't get elected. The government agencies that are populated with so many people who have been there forever, the swamp. I mean, it's the swamp is what we know it as. But, but you know, the, the swamp is an administrative state um, that professes to be independent agencies removed from any sort of political inclinations or leanings or biases. We know that's not true. Um, so, so I would be in favor uh, of the proposal to argue that the, the Pendleton Act is outdated, therefore it needs to be repealed. And, and I want to repeat Trump's line again because he says it. And once again, he's not running for anything um, that I know of. 
it kind of is, we will pass critical reforms making every executive branch employee fireable by the president of the United States. The deep state must and will be brought to heel. So the 780 economists that work at the Federal Reserve, are they or are they not government employees? I can't find out. I mean, I really can't. Uh, 98.6 or 98.4% of, the, of the, the people who work at the Board of Governors, I don't know about the others, but the 2,500 people that work at the Board of Governors, nearly every single one of those is not required to answer a freedom of information when it comes to salary. The ones that, I mean, the 2% that are rib is 350000 uh, it's 375000 299000 These are highly compensated um, people who work in the administrative state that really and truly the president can do nothing about. So you've got a president um, who doesn't like the policies or, or, or the direction of the Fed, but he can't do anything about it because of the Pendleton Act. He can't fire anyone or replace anyone because he doesn't like their politics. I think that needs to change. Take a break. Back in a minute. Three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Uh, someone's on the phone. I think it's Michael from Sumter. Let's go to the call. Yes, sir. Good morning, Ken. Hey, Michael. How are you? I'm well, thank you, sir. Um, I, I almost thought uh, just before you went on to break, you were going to say uh, three letters, uh, ESG, uh, um, illuminating to the environmental social governance score that uh, uh, is that not many people talk about. Uh, uh, the, the fellow that follows you, Mr. Glenn Beck, he's uh, heavy into promoting it. And in fact, he will be in, uh, he will be in state this week to talk to our legislators about uh, um, dropping any investment they have with, uh, uh, with, with, with uh, anybody that's going to do ESG scores, uh, which stands for environmental, social, and governments. Mm-hmm. I did mention it before. But I, I, I've not heard you say anything much about that. Uh, a lot of people think that Mr. Beck is a crackpot, you know, but I don't put anything against uh, what's going on anymore in this world, especially with, uh, you know, they, they, want, they want to make everybody all want to, you know, global uh, global scores. And China does it now, uh, by the way. It'll affect your insurance and being able to get loans and things of, of that nature. And uh, I was just curious if you were aware of that and if you'd... Uh, thank, yeah, th- thank you, Michael. Appreciate the call. Yeah, the, the ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And um, investors are beginning, um, I don't know, applying some of these standards that, that are non-financial. Obviously, there's a pro forma. There's a business model that makes sense or does not. But as some of these investors apply uh, so some of the financial analysis and processes to identify whether or not um, there are growth opportunities and a return can be expected, they're also beginning to apply some of these environmental, social, governance standards when they evaluate companies and countries for that matter. Um, and sustainability is a big part of this. Um, I, I'm somewhat aware of it. Uh, you know, and I don't think Glenn's, a, I don't think Beck's a, a crackpot. 
I think he can be a crackpot. But I think anybody who offers up alternative opinions or conspiracy theorists or, or conspiracy theories on the radio, I mean, you're always going to be judged as somewhat of a crackpot. It's easy to take a shot at a guy who says things out of the box. Um, now, now do, do I think Beck's a conspiracy theorist? He says he is. So I got to take him at his word. Do I think he's a crackpot at times? But I think there are times I'm probably uh, a crackpot. I mean, I think there are times we're all. Let me ask you a question. Is it more crackpotty to believe your government or not? I mean, seriously, I mean, put, put, you know, stew on that for a second. Are you more of a, um, uh, are you more of a weirdo to believe what your government says than you are to not? Really? I mean, at this point in juncture, I mean, we're a long way down the road. We got 200 some odd years in the rearview mirror. I mean, we've heard Russia collusion and we have all, I mean, we've, it's been the craziest political era. I tell people all the time, they talk about the popularity of the show and we do a good job. Thank you for saying that. But if we can't do a good job now, I mean, we'd fail miserably in, in normal political times. I mean, this has been, uh, I hate to say it, but the political discontent, the political confusion uh, has been a godsend when you do what we do for for a living. So to Mike's point, you know, I, I don't think Beck's a crackpot. I think he can be a crackpot at times, as most of us can. But on ESG, I mean, yeah, I do believe that the um, – the financial sector will begin applying um, non-financial factors and and as part of their analysis process in evaluating whether or not it's a good investment or not. And it'll, it'll, be, it'll, it'll stand under the guise of sustainability. That's not the truth. I mean, it's about climate change. It's about the religion that the left worships at the altar of that may have some validity. Uh, it certainly doesn't have what, what Al Gore thinks it has or what John Kerry thinks it has or what nine out of 10 liberal um, Democrats believe it is. Um, you know, I, I've often said, and I think it's, it's ridiculous to say anything other than this. I mean, th- this is probably the most comfortable political statement I could say today. And it's the one thing I could say with a certain degree of assuredness. Um, on the issue of man-made climate change, I don't know. On the issue of climate change in general, it's obvious the, the climate changes. I mean, it's, it's warming by about one, uh, a little better than one-tenth of one degree Celsius per decade. So in 80 years, if the trends hold, which they won't, but if they did, I mean, if the models today were to hold true, in 80 years, the planet Earth would be about one degree Celsius warmer. And we're going to just basically sell our souls to a religion that has no foundational proof. I mean, it's modeling, it's guessing, it's estimating, and we're going to really and truly redefine how we generate power for this economy based on that. I mean, that's silly. That's nonsense. But but that's kind of where half the country is. And, and most people are watching Seinfeld. And John Kerry and Al Gordon knows most people are watching Seinfeld. So if they show an image of a, a raging river or a raging wildfire and they connected to climate change, they know how unserious you are. The only way the left gets anything done is the ability to prey on your unseriousness. I mean, if you were a serious people and you looked at some of the modeling and the modeling, I mean, I'm taking their modeling, not mine, their modeling says that the planet Earth will be about one degree Celsius warmer in the next 80 years. That's what the data shows. Now, now they can accelerate the modeling that they can, they can um, conjure up that we're going to emit so much more CO2 if we don't change, if we don't curb 
uh, if we don't, you know, take into account what we're doing to the, I mean, it's the absurdity of that. I mean, it's, it's really silly. I mean, it's silly that people believe that, that there's anybody walking the face of the planet Earth today that knows precisely what the tropospheric conditions will be 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years now. But, but ESG is a derivative of that. I mean, environmental, social, and governance is a result of um, people believing in uh, some form of religion and investors being convinced that they need to apply some of these non-financial factors as part of their analysis uh, and whether to lend money or not, um, support or not. And, and once again, it's, it's used under the guise of sustainability. Sustainable business is something the left and right are interested in. I mean, if we can recycle everything on earth, I mean, you know, we, we do plow. I mean, I'm a conservative Republican, and they had to, my daughter and wife had to drag me kicking and screaming. But we recycle. We got a special place we put plastic in and a special place we put cardboard. I mean, that, that's a commitment to sustainability. I mean, that's smart. That's economically uh, feasible. That, that, that does help make the planet a better place, not, you know, not filling the landfills up as quickly and taking something that we've already used and potentially using it again. I mean, that, that, to me, that makes perfect sense. But the environmental, social, and governance standards of which the left wants to apply and, and force investors to, to basically say good investment, bad investment, not based on the rate of return, uh, not based on the net operating income, but whether or not it abides to this religion that they believe in. And I, I just, for the life of me, I can't get there. I mean, and, and I, you know, I, I'm not, I mean, uh, Boudreaux gave me a little more credit than I probably deserve. I'm not a moron. I'm just a side of being a moron, but, but I'm not a rocket scientist. But, but I, I can't fathom, as my mom used to say, how do you fix your mouth to say that? I mean, the, the arrogance of a human being walking on two feet saying that I know precisely what the planet Earth's temperature will be 80 years from now when we thought it was going to rain this past Saturday at the Trump rally. It ended up being clear and cold. I mean, those are the same modeling. Well, there's a difference in weather and climate. Yeah, there is. Uh, climate is an extended period of time. Uh, weather is the here and now. What is the weather like today? I mean, how many people say, what is the climate like today? No. What is the weather going to be like 100 years from now? No, they really and truly, that's the only deviation. Uh, the, the weather is here and now. The climate is things we don't know. And when you say um, climate change, there's a certain speculative force that, that you know, c- c- people become very curious about. Hey, I read yesterday that if we don't stop emitting CO2s, we're going to all burn in 30 or 40 years. I don't think anybody seriously believes that, but it, it permeates the mind. I mean, it, it becomes a part of your psyche. And then the next thing you know, you're hearing ESG and environmental social governance. I mean, it, to me, it's witchcraft. I mean, it's hocus pocus and it's witchcraft, and it's not to be seriously considered. Um, if we're going to have a debate, on climate change, let's have a debate. Excluding the propaganda, excluding the government-funded research uh, that, that was, you know, you're commanded. In other words, if you're a scientist and you got a grant and, and some of the criteria of the grant is, you know, you got to come back with this finding or this conclusion, and, and that's what you do. Because if you don't, you don't get the next grant. So when you hear that 96%, 96% of scientists are in agreement, they are. The 96% of scientists who got government grants to support and endorse climate change agree that climate change is real. Is there motivation to save the planet or make sure they get next year's grant? I'll let you decide. How many times have I said, follow the money? 
Not some of the time, not most of the time, all of the time. Take a break. Back in just a bit. 843-661-0937. Got a guest in our studio. Before we do that, let's go to our phones. I think Michael in Florence is on the air. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay, Ken. Yeah, I made it to the uh, Trump rally this weekend. And and I know you're, you've expressed some concern about, well, it's about a guy. It's about a guy. And the thing is, there's no other guy out there who seems to understand how messed up things are in our government and how to fix them and is willing to stick his neck out to do it. I mean, it was very costly for Trump to be in the White House. Um, He lost about half of his net worth during the time he was there, and yet he's willing to go back for more. And there's nobody standing up for us the way Trump is. Interesting. Thank you, Michael. I hear that a lot. You know, if not him, whom? I mean, I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to explore. I'm willing to consider somebody else. I've just not heard from anybody who's willing to call it like it is. I think I read somewhere the other day that the amount of money Trump lost as president of the United States equal the amount of money the Clintons and Obamas made after becoming president of the United States. Trump's the only guy to go into the White House and lose money. Everybody else from Bush on has gone into the White House and become enormously wealthy. Nobody does it better than the Clintons. I mean, these folks are extraordinary business people. You start a foundation, and then you get rich. (laughs) I mean, imagine that. The Henry Ford Foundation was before Ford Motor Company or after? The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, before or after Microsoft? The Clintons are so good at it. (laughs) They started a foundation and then got wealthy. But I think Trump lost more money than all the others combined made after becoming a career politician. Um, let's put politics aside for just a second. Um, Cecilia Meggs is with us. She's executive director of Lighthouse Ministries. Um, they are having a week-long affair beginning this coming Monday in support of their ministry. Cecilia, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm Be- doing well. Before we talk about the barbecue, let's make, I'm sure people understand exactly what Lighthouse Ministries is and what you folks do. Um, Lighthouse Ministries has been serving Florence County families for 25 years, and our main focus is to make sure that families stay safely in their homes and in order to do that we help families who are struggling with their rent so that they're not evicted and with the utilities so they do not become disconnected we will make sure they're safely housed a safety net without the government being involved in it you folks do it in a charitable fashion um this is a big deal for you i mean the barbecue fundraiser is how you raise most of the money you need to take care of these people who find themselves in difficult situations. That is correct. It is our largest fundraiser. This is our 22nd year. We started this to make sure that we would have the funds needed to help the number of families that are in need in our community. Last year, we raised $52,000, and we were able to help 100, um, 185 families with that. This year, our goal is 55000 so that we can help 195, you know, help more families who are in need in our community. Okay, we got to help you for you to help them. <laughs> How can we help you? A lot of different ways. You can purchase a ticket. You can do that by either going on our website at lighthouseflorence.org. You can call us at 843-629-0830. Or you can just go by Holt Barbecue on West Evans next week, Monday through Friday, and ask for a Lighthouse Ministries barbecue plate and this is not a day of barbecue this is a week of barbecue (laughs) 
at Hope Brothers. I mean, if we go by there, do we need to say this is, uh, I want to buy one for Lighthouse Ministries? I got to believe they're still running their restaurant separate of helping you with this. I mean, to help us logistically work through that. Yeah, no, you just go in and say, I want a Lighthouse Ministries barbecue plate. And don't need a ticket or anything. Don't. They may hand you a ticket okay. and you hand it back to them. But, gotcha. <laughs> but you don't have to purchase it ahead of time. It's best to purchase it ahead of time so they can get a an idea as how many is actually needed. Mm-hmm. But if you're not able to, you can go in and just say, I want to purchase a Lighthouse Ministries barbecue plate, and they're $10. Okay, if we want to do it the right way and get a ticket, <laughs> how can we find? Where are the outlets? I mean, can we go online and purchase tickets? Yeah. The easiest and best way is to go online at lighthouseflorence.org slash events, and the tickets are $10 a plate. Okay, and that is the week of Monday, March 21st through Friday, March 25th, and the way only way you succeed is if we sell enough barbecue plates to raise the money to allow you to help these families in need. Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you very much. Once again, $10 per plate. That's barbecue, uh, sweet potato. Yeah. Slaw, green beans, and hush puppies. So um, good luck. Uh, Appreciate all you do. Uh, Lighthouse Ministries annual barbecue catered by Holt Brothers Barbecue in Florence. Uh, Pick up, drive through, or eat in 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday. Tickets are $10. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a second. Welcome back. 843-661-0937. couple of minutes before we're off the air on this Tuesday morning. I think Al is on the phone. Let's go to Al. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, How are you? It's fine. Uh, I have to agree. Uh, I can't remember last time I I went out in the rain in the wind. I think it was uh, Boston College homecoming. We lost you, Al. You still there? I tell you, I had two. I had two of my buddies with me. We really enjoyed it. We'll do it again. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, talking about. I just got a text a second ago from a uh, from a friend of mine. <laughs> he said, "He said, hey, I've been on the night shift, but somebody just called me and told me that you're still pushing somebody other than Trump. I'm not pushing anybody. I'm just saying there's a next phase to America first. At some point in time, I think we all agree that America first does not include Donald Trump, right? I mean, I think we can all agree Trump's not going to live forever, but we hope America first is, to, is, is, I mean, I hope it's the pervasive political philosophy in America. I, I, I hope the majority of political decisions are based on this America first belief and, 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 and I don't know, fundamental uh, platform and agenda. I hope that hijacks the, uh, the GOP and it's forced to go that way. But, but sooner or later, we're going to live in an America first movement that does not include Donald Trump. Is that in 2024 or is that in 2028? I don't have any idea. I mean, I can't predict what is what is to come. Um, a lot of this will have to do with how successful and effective he is in the midterms. I mean, does, does Nancy Mace get beat? Does Tom Rice get beat? Uh, does Liz Cheney get beat? Does some of the other Trump endorsed candidates, Murkowski and Alaska get beat? Um, and then he's, He's highly effective, and, and, and I mean, there's no question about it. But if that happens, he's, he's going to be far more inclined to run. The point I'm trying to make is as this political movement matures and evolves and takes the next, next step or two or three, at some point in time, it is going to be absent of Donald Trump. I mean, it will always owe him the greatest debt of gratitude for a myriad of reasons. I mean, I don't think he created America first. But he certainly branded it. 
He certainly maximized its potential. He certainly um, made it the dominant political force it is in America today. So when I say, hey, man, let's think about something other than Trump, that there's going to be a day in which we're all forced to think about this movement, not as a devotion to one man, but, you know, kind of a political movement that has disrupted normalcy in both parties. We'll talk tomorrow.